Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of people that make it and occasionally are, well, yeah. Occasionally ourselves. Dude, that's how it goes, yeah. We do various <laughs> things at a place called Freethink Media. It just seems weird. He started like, looking why, at his hand and thinking, why should we, my, why should we subject ourselves to this ridicule? Well, because... Like, we don't deserve it. Yeah, we, don't. we don't deserve it. We're better than, we're better than, than them. Yeah. Whoever they are. Well, we're not more... Mm. We're not certainly not more punctual than them, Camille. <laughs> well, you know what? That's mostly because of you, Matt Welch, on your colored people time. Um, <laughs> Matt Welch, editor at Large of Reason magazine. Uh, Michael Moynihan... He does things at Vice News. He's apparently he's been on the road for Vice News again. I have which is, been. This yeah. is becoming a thing. Who, who a founded thing. Vice News, yeah. Michael? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I have uh, let me go to Wikipedia on this one. I don't know. A couple of guys. Oh my goodness. A couple of guys. Oh god. A couple of guys. We're gonna get in so much trouble today. Which is what you want. It's the reason yeah, why totally, yeah. you're here. Um, we we actually do have a lot of stuff to do this week, and I don't want to I don't want to delay too long. I mean, we've got the debates that just happened. Apparently, there is no guarantee that there will be a peaceful transfer of power in the event of electoral victory or loss or defeat or something. I don't know. Um, I've seen polls just this evening suggesting that more and more Americans think that it would be totally fine for their parties to use violence in order to achieve political ends. Which I suppose that's not a great sign, but who knows. Um, and we also had a presidential debate this week. The thing that we've been waiting for for so long, it happened. Predictably, it was a shit show. Mm. We shall discuss this, but we also have some new developments with respect to the Supreme Court and other legal matters going on. And any time this sort of thing happens, there is one person who we prefer to talk to above all others. Mm. And that person... Is, is not our here. friend. <laughs> but we have He's got a phone. friend. <laughs> Justice Elena Kagan. What up, girl? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm <So> kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's our homeboy Damon Root, who uh he, he covers all things related to the courts for, for Reason magazine. He's a colleague of Matt Welch's, he's a friend of the podcast, and it has been too long since you've too been long. with us, Damon. How are you? I'm I'm doing very well. It's great to be the uh, 17th person you called to uh, talk mm-hmm. about this tonight. That uh, <laughs> I answered, and it's now it's great to be back. It's my third time on the podcast, so I'm Ooh. feeling good. Feeling good about wow. that. Yeah, get in the bathroom. Yeah, we had, we originally that. had a, we originally had Bill Coney Barrett, who was apparently yeah. a relative of some sort, and uh, couldn't make it. So um, so yeah, here here you are, Damon. We don't we're on Zoom because we're all over um, the state of New York. Um, you're calling from a telephone. Right. You're in a basement before we start recording. You clarified that you were in a basement sitting on some sort of crate, burying a body, drinking a beer or something. Is that am I correct <laughs> in hearing that? Yeah, I mean, it's Thursday. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Damon, not too long ago, we were all wondering what would happen. Republicans made it pretty clear that they intended to nominate someone. And to the extent they're able to in the Senate, they are they intend to to actually push this person forward. Damon, who is this woman? What can you tell us about her? 
Should we fear her? Will she take away women's reproductive rights? And why do her eyes look like that? Wow. Oh, that's racist. Wow, that's incredible that's, you said that. Yeah. That's your contribution, Matt? Wow. Pretty, pretty uh, it's Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, former Notre Dame law professor, recently uh, made a federal judge on the Seventh Circuit uh, by President Trump. Uh, this is a, a home run for legal conservatives, especially for social conservatives. She's a, like a folk hero in religious and social conservative circles. Um, I think that people who uh, would like to see Roe versus Wade and then also Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which is the follow-up uh, uh, abortion rights decision, which is really actually the main one protecting abortion rights right now, uh, people who would like to see that struck down are going to be very happy with her on the court. And people who are worried about the, those decisions being struck down or at least being uh, severely pared back um, are, would, be, would be worried about her. I think there's, there's no question that she is not a fan of, of those those particular opinions, um, someone like Senator Josh Hawley, you know that that idiot, he uh, had had made it clear that he was only going to support uh, the next nominee if that person was clearly against Roe v. Wade, and he came out and said, I'm, "I'm really happy with her." So um, it's this is this is definitely part of the story with her is that she is she is not a friend to those those that kind of jurisprudence and those kind of decisions, and depending on where you come down on that issue, you're either you're really happy or you're really not about her. One thing that I learned by reading Damon Root, who's this really good writer, uh, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, who, you know, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, and, and that's a, just a terrible name for me to try to pronounce um, early or late in the podcast, uh, but that she, RBG, was no fan of Roe v. Wade either. Is there a, 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 like a voting a, a jurisprudential record that ACB has had that relates to this issues, or is it just that... Oh, she's got seven kids and she's a Catholic. We think that she's going to be good. Are we calling bad. her ACB? The, I just want to be clear before Damon answers. Are we calling her ACB? Uh, everything's uh, is, is up for uh, grabs. Because it's now like like now female Supreme Court justices are like assassins. You always have to use their middle names. You know, it's like Lee Harvey Oswald. Now we have an AC. Uh, okay, ACB. Damon, what about ACB? Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to make sure I got that uh, acronym right. Yeah, don't say the notorious ACB because yes. that's um, it's too soon. Too soon. Did, for that. Didn't Kamala Harris call her the uh, call RGB the notorious BIG? Yes, she did. In, okay, good. Which is better sure. than the notorious RG three, but you know that was coming next. <laughs> Steve Cup for her. Uh, her 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 views in this area of the law are are, are uh, can be gleaned especially from her uh, le- career as a legal academic, uh, writings on legal precedent. Um, and related issues. She, it's only she's only been a federal appellate judge uh, since 2017, so it's not a long it's not a long record as a judge. But there is a, there is definitely a paper trail with her in terms of her legal writings, which is one of the things that's actually kind of interesting. And I think it's a positive development in terms of Trump, what the so-called Trump judges, these various federal judges that we're seeing that the, the Trump administration put forward is that. Because the Republicans in the Senate are running the show, you're seeing you're seeing people with real paper trails, uh, people who have views that they've 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 staked out. I mean, they're not always views I agree with. They often are not views I agree with. But it's kind of refreshing, at least to know where some of these candidates, judicial candidates, stand on certain things. Because your typical Supreme Court confirmation is just this this dance around um, any kind of substantive answer. And then you have someone like Justice Kagan, who you mentioned before, who had managed to really not take a stand on anything. She'd worked as a government lawyer. Her whole career and then and then a, a law professor but writings and kind of more general general ways so you know you didn't you couldn't really pin her down on anything it was pretty you know you could guess kind of where she might come down on things so 
with with ACB, uh, for better or worse, there's a lot of meat there to be able to look at. Notre Dame Law, isn't that like natural rights university? Um, uh, from what I uh, recall, uh, certain people who we all know in common have mentioned that uh, in, in the past. So she's sort of steeped in, uh, in a natural rights reading of the law. Well, natural law, uh, natural law of reading. I mean, she's I would say, yeah, she comes out of that. She clerked for Justice Scalia. And I think that that's a that's a good comparison point for her. I think she's very much a, a legal conservative in, in the Scalia mold. If and and so from a libertarian perspective, that's that's both good and bad. Um, you can just remember how libertarians felt about Scalia was sometimes we're really happy and sometimes, you know, kind of like knocking their heads against the wall. Um, and so, you know, there's there's. On, uh, in terms of maybe some criminal justice issues, Fourth Amendment, you know, there's there's maybe some reasons to be a little optimistic, or at least not too concerned with her that she's not going to be as sort of pro law enforcement as someone like Justice Alito is. Uh, uh, probably won't be as good as Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch, on these issues, but um, might might be a little more in the Scalia mold. But then, uh, on the other side, in terms of unenumerated rights, uh, a lot of really core legal issues that the libertarian legal movement is very much concerned about the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, whether the 14th Amendment protects economic liberty, whether federal courts should be defending economic liberty and really scrutinizing economic regulations. Uh, that's something where she's very much with Scalia and very much in a, in a sort of a judicial deference camp, which is essentially put the thumb on the scales in favor of the government in those kind of those kind of cases. Well, Damon, I mean, I, I'm really happy for you and I'm going to let you finish and all that good stuff. But let's get down to brass tacks here. We, we know that what conservatives care about are abortions and guns and, and church, kind of. How is she going to disappoint conservatives? <laughs> well, what 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 the what the folks who are who are advising the Trump administration on judicial appointments will tell you is that by by um really emphasizing legal philosophy and finding judges who talk about originalism or textualism and some of these kind of uh, these guiding principles of legal interpretation. When you, when you, when you get those issues right, uh, you don't have a David Souter or a, um, or a Sandra Day O'Connor who ends up disappointing uh, rank and file conservatives. You, you get judges who do what they want. And so, uh, I, like I said, at the beginning, like she's a, she's a, she's a home run for, um, your, your kind of social religious conservative, I think. And, and, um, I think she'll probably be conservative and libertarians will probably be happy with her on the second amendment also. She, there is, there is a bit of a paper trail in the second amendment as a federal judge. She, she had an opinion, uh, uh, affirming that uh, felons shouldn't just automatically lose their Second Amendment rights, um, and that's a that's that's a contentious issue, and just the whole idea of felons losing all sorts of constitutional rights and 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 getting rights vote restored and and various other things, and so to to for her to to basically kind of stand up for the Second Amendment in that context, that's the the gun rights community is, is pretty happy about something like that. Every time we have one of these seasons come up, uh, not only do we get Damon Root on this podcast, but there is just an avalanche of really, really stupid media coverage, and people are forever like trying to plot uh, Supreme Court justices on a, you know, uh, a, just a line of of ideology. Oh, this one's here. That one's thirteen percent instead of eighty seven percent. How uh, uh, do, does that fill you with dread or a sense of opportunity? Like, are you, are you just banging your head against the wall constantly, just trying to? to read through every Jeffrey Tubin nonsense. Um, uh, and, and how have you kind of uh, uh, observed how this particular fight is different or, or discussion is different or the same 
as these things have been traditionally? Well, you know, the Supreme Court confirmation hearings are, are I, I think, a real. Uh, I mean, it's it's they're they're a real embarrassment, um, and and they're hard to watch. This, the members, most of the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee are really like, it's, you know, it's like watching the the presidential debate this week. It's like licking the floor of the men's bathroom at uh, Penn Station. I mean, it's just it's, it's horrible. Um, <laughs> I thought you said it's bad. Yeah, right. Um, I guess it depends on what you go for. So I, I tend not to enjoy this this time of the year when um, when when everybody's focused on the Supreme Court because there's a there's a lot of stupidity. Um, and I think that the, the Brett hearings are going to be uh, especially bad in that front. Um, one little bit of advice I'd give to anybody listening who, who would like if if there are questions and if and, and if they if they want a substantive discussion is pay attention when um, Amy Klobuchar you know, when she's not throwing binders at millennials, which I support, by the way, I'm in favor of her for that. Um, She's a great questioner, one of the smartest liberals, probably just one of the smartest members of that committee, and has been a great questioner, and I think will will really get into some substantive issues with with Barrett. Uh, And then also um, uh, Coons, Senator Coons, will, you know, I think you can expect that from him also. But the rest of them, it's going to be just grandstanding and a lot of stupidity and and like reading prepared questions that they don't understand the premise of, they don't understand the legal issues. They really don't. They're just, you know, hoping to, you know, get become a become a you know clip on the Daily Show or something. But it's, you know, it's just kind of a joke. Maybe we could turn our attention to to some of the things that have been talked about in terms of the changes that Democrats have been uh, suggesting they may make to the courts if, in fact, Republicans do place this this woman on the Supreme Court. We've heard that court packing is one possibility. Um, how serious a threat do you think that is at this stage? Well, you know, if you, if you look back at when when the famous FDR court packing plan and in the 1930s, uh, Roosevelt was defeated not by conservatives on that, but I was actually members of his own party. The um, Senator Burton Wheeler of Montana, who is a huge progressive, mm-hmm. capital P progressive, lower lower P progressive. Um, and he he basically like led the Senate fight against it. And then Justice Louis Brandeis, the grand old man of the legal progressive movement on the Supreme Court, he was, I think he was 80 at the time. And Brandeis worked behind the scenes against Roosevelt, against the court packing plan, because, you know, it was it, it, that was a very clear attempt to tinker uh, with a co-equal branch of government. Roosevelt had, had lost and some of his big losses in the New Deal were nine zero, the, the, the so-called uh, Black Monday decisions like the Schechter brothers case um, where, where, where the National Industrial Recovery Act is struck down. That's a 9-0 decision. And so Roosevelt is losing bad, and, and he wants to pack the court with, with New Deal-friendly um, justices. And, and Democrats and progressives are, are, are really in the lead of, of rejecting that. And, and I don't know that we'll see something like that this time around if, if Biden gets behind court packing. There's certainly energy for it. I think that, that um, there's, a, there's, a, there's this idea that, that um, the Democrats have not lost fair and square this time because the Republicans under McConnell in the Senate with Merrick Garland and with filibustering and, and, and all these sorts of things. And then, of course, rushing, rushing, the, is rushing the ACB vote in. So I, I would I would seems like there's a, there's appetite on the left and among Democrats. will I guess we'll have to see. Um, because if if Justice Breyer retires, you know, that would give by President Biden an opportunity to, to get some fresh, fresh liberal blood on the court. Um, and then, you know, anything can happen with with the health of other justices. So it's possible that Biden might get the opportunity to essentially remake the court and, and tilt the balance 
in terms of political, you know, democratic appointees back in a better numerical position, might get to do that without court packing. But I, it, there seems to be a real appetite for it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount those calls. I, Biden, of course, during during the debate, was asked by Chris Wallace if he would um, countenance court packing, and uh, he refused in the weirdest way to refuse to answer the question by saying, "Then it would become the issue, which is the entire purpose of the debate. Why you're in the state? It's the issue, and what is your position on the issue? You doddering old fool!" And you know, people were so impressed by the fact that he didn't, you know, start you know, reading the telephone book and just speaking in tongues and then falling asleep that people <laughs> tend to miss that rather important point that, that, you know, Biden is, is, you know, he says, it's my party now. I'm the party. I am the party. I am the party. Specifically. Wow. Well, specifically when, when um, Trump was saying, well, you know, you're an AOC, you're a Bernie Sanders type, which is, you know, unbelievable. You know, he's, he's about as moderate as they come. And but in he also, of course, doesn't doesn't want to uh, throw those people under the bus. And he's, he's worried about his left flank in the party. So when it came to court backing, he wouldn't answer the question. He wouldn't say no. It's a pretty easy no, uh, one would think. And at, to, to, to Damon's point about about the FDR example. Yeah, I mean, it comes from its own his own party. And one would imagine that um, or one would hope that there'd be some opposition from from sort of more mainstream Democrats and not these, you know, crazy people who want to pack the court because they're not getting what they want what's the mechanics of it damon like you have to like pass a constitutional amendment is it a law is it a president waves his magic wand how does it happen it's um it's it's an act of congress the uh the constitution uh vests the the judicial power in one supreme court and, and in such inferior courts as uh, congress may ordain and ordain and establish uh nine the number nine is not is not in the constitution it's just a supreme court the Judiciary Act of uh, 1787 the, uh, set the first number is six. There are six justices, one chief, five five associates. Uh, the number has been as high as 10. That was briefly. That was during the Civil War. There was a 10th justice. Uh, it's been nine since 1869, and it's been it's been largely nine since the 1830s. Like I said, it was up to 10 briefly in 1863. So nine is a, is a is, at this point is a traditional number, but it's not fixed anywhere. So Congress. Uh, you know, FDR's court packing plan was a piece of legislation that uh, Congress that he sent to Congress and and uh, went down to defeat. Um, so this the same the same you know the same process could could play out in favor of court packing if the Democrats have Congress and um, are there's the that that energy to do it. I've recently, Damon, seen some progressives saying things online like there there is no such thing as a judicial <laughs> review described in the Constitution. What what on earth are they talking about? Well, that's a great, a great topic because the the idea that the court um, is should not be striking down uh, acts of Congress or acts of state legislatures or or acts of the president is something that that depending on who's basically out of power um, props up and you can you can just trace it throughout American history where sometimes it's the right saying that sometimes it's the left saying that. Uh, the thing you often hear is that well, Marbury versus Madison, that famous early Supreme Court case, invented judicial review. The 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 if if you if you're interested in the or you care about the original meaning of the Constitution and what what the language was understood to mean at the time of the ratification, you look at that phrase, the judicial power, uh, which is where the federal the federal bench is essentially is, is established in the Constitution, and that was understood by the people who wrote that language and, and more importantly, people who ratified it. So that's, that's your original understanding to include a, a power that, of judicial review of the power to uh, to negative 
uh, acts of Congress to strike down strike down legislation. So it's something that that is there uh, in the Constitution. The phrase ju- judicial review is not, but that but that that power, that duty of of the federal courts to enforce the Constitution. And ba- essentially, the question is when a statute says something and then a provision of the Constitution says something that goes in the, in, the, in a different direction. Uh, what are the federal courts supposed to do? They're supposed to enforce the Constitution, not the statute. And that's that's what judicial review is. That's what the judicial power in a constitutional case or controversy is. What's the best supporting argument for their position, though? I mean, what is the court doing if not judicial review? The greatest proponent of judicial deference or judicial restraint and critic of, of a really muscular judicial review is this progressive era Supreme Court justice named Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., and and he really thought that the the court should play a very modest minimal role essentially. And then there's a guy who influenced him um, named Thayer, a, a professor at Harvard. And and basically their idea was that the a, a law would have to be so obviously unconstitutional. So it's it sort of at a minimum it would need to be a, a unanimous court decision. You know, no nothing could be struck down by five four or something like that. It would just have to be so overwhelmingly clear and obvious. And, you know, a lot of legislation, it's, there's politics, there's people have different perspectives. And so pretty much anything that, that, that the court is striking down nowadays, you know, would fail that sort of test. But that idea, that old idea that the court should play a very, very modest, minimal role, um, essentially, you know, there's, there's lots of stuff that the federal courts do that's not constitutional controversies. In fact, most of the, most of the, the federal appellate court and the Supreme Court's docket is not these big kind of constitutional cases that we talk about. So, you know, the courts would do that kind of everyday business under this point of view. And in these big constitutional matters, essentially would, would really defer to the, you know, the will of the majority. I think the, that argument um, in, its, in its, one of its strongest forms is that if you look at the different branches of government, the president is elected by the people, Congress is elected by the people, state legislature is elected by the people, uh, and then the Supreme Court is unelected. It's the least democratic branch of government. It's undemocratic. And so doesn't the, the undemocratic, least democratic branch of government owe this extra respect to the, to, the, to the democratic branches who are accountable to the people, who express the will of the people? And who are these nine unelected, you know, guardians and robes? Uh, who are they to substitute their their policy preferences, their views for the for the will of the majority? And that I think is is that that's the Holmesian, Thayerian, Robert Bork, the great conservative legal theorist, Robert Bork. That was his view. Um, you know, I think that's that's probably the best way to understand that. You know, the, the argument on the other side is is that you know the court is an undemocratic or anti-democratic branch by design. It's supposed to be there as a check. Um, you know, if you think about a piece of legislation, really to, to fully survive constitutional muster, you know, it's passed by Congress, president signs it, and then the Supreme Court kind of says yes or no if there's review. And that's, and that's kind of the full test, all three branches, you know, weigh in. And so that's kind of the court's role in the, in the constitutional system. And, and, you know, we have a written constitution and, and the people have rights and they think their rights are being violated by government actors and they, get to, they go to court and they get to vindicate them and sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. But the but the role of the court is to enforce that written constitution and to you know to act as a check, a check on um, you know Madison and Federalist Ten talked about the tyranny of the majority um, and and he and he Madison talked about you know one of the great things that the federal courts could do is to enforce the Bill of Rights and to enforce you know sort of minority positions against against the tyranny of the majority and against um in fact as a he called it an impenetrable bulwark against assumptions of power by the legislative and executive branches
Before we leave the Supreme Court, uh, Damon, um, we have as one of the two uh, nominees for president, someone who has had a pretty pivotal role in the Senate Judiciary Committee for uh, two or three thousand years. Um, uh, people have the general <laughs> idea that that so the confirmation process has been kind of a clown show, a shit show for a really long time. Can you speak to two things? One is um, how much Joe Biden is kind of part of why we have the shit show, if you would indeed agree with that characterization. And then two, if you can give us any kind of idea, given his prominence in that role, uh, a window into the way that he thinks about judicial nominations himself or philosophy. You know, Biden, Biden's been around long enough that he's sort of involved with everything that's been bad in American politics for the last, it feels like two centuries, but certainly half a century. Uh, I, I mean, absolutely. You know, you, you know the thing about the, the courts, and this is something that liberals are, you're hearing more and hearing liberals say more and more, is, is that we need to care about the courts as much as the Republicans do. And I think it's true that the Republican Party has a, has, has a long list of grievances and martyrs and losses and things they want to avenge having to do with the courts. And, you know, Biden is a, is a central villain in that story. Um, and, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, filibustering uh, Republican nominees or like the, the what, what many conservatives saw as the mistreatment of Robert Bork as a mistreatment of Clarence Thomas. Uh, you know, you can, you know, kind of run down the list. Uh, you know, Biden is, is right there in the middle of it. There's also during the George W. Bush years, sort of not as well known, but uh, there were a number of, of uh, George W. Bush judicial appointees who were filibustered by Senate Democrats, including Biden, including Barack Obama, including Hillary Clinton, um, for, uh, for, for long periods of time. There was a fili an attempted filibuster of Justice Alito that all of those Democrats I just mentioned all signed on to that. It, it, it didn't, it didn't they'd have the votes, it didn't succeed, but they attempted to filibuster Alito. So now when, so now when, there's the complaints about filibustering Merrick, Gar Merrick Garland. Republicans say, well, you, you did that to our guys a few years ago. Uh, Je judge Janice Rogers Brown, who I, was, I thought was a, was a great judge um, and so who was on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, she was filibustered for two years. Bush essentially had to renominate her because she had been filibustered by Senate Democrats for so long. Uh, you know, so you, you know, Biden's fingerprints are all over sort of all of that. Um, as well as the as well as the kind of circus like atmosphere. Now, this is the, you know, I mean, just to be clear, I'll, I'll do a little both sidesism here. I mean, the Republicans have have degraded the process and have not are not blameless uh, by any means either. Um, both sides have been pretty bad, um, and have and it's been this escalation. And at this point, it's one of these conflicts where you know everybody has got just you know hatred for the other side and the things that they did and like well you know you did this to our guy well well, well, you, well you did it to this and it just kind of goes on and on not sure how you ratchet it down if that's what that looks like what a de-escalation looks like because um, it's certainly in a very kind of a you know destructive destructive place i think at this point and, and as for biden's judicial philosophy if he has one that's any evidence that can give people an idea of how he might appoint people if he becomes president well, I mean, one 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 thing I think you know a lot of listeners of Fifth Column probably appreciate is is um, before the Clarence Thomas hearings, um, before the Anita Hill uh, allegations came out, and that became the whole story. The very first day, the very first essentially questioning that Clarence Thomas got was that Biden came out and accused Thomas of being a crazy libertarian. Mm. He took some some comments that Thomas had made, he like ripped them totally out of context, 
to try to paint him as the, as this wild-eyed libertarian. Uh, what Thomas it was, was it's actually very interesting writing that Thomas uh, uh, had had done, where he where he was said like, look, you know, these these libertarian legal theorists, they you know, they, there's something appealing about the really aggressive role for the courts in terms of protecting property rights and economic liberty. Thomas said he found that appealing, you know, but then but I think Robert Bork. And the and the restrained, deferential, modest uh, uh, approach is actually the way to go. And what Biden did is he took the first sentence, the word you know that word appealing, and he just kept saying that over and over again, repeating it, you know, like a very Trumpian, like you won't say law and order, you won't say law and order. He just kind of kind of kind of just kind of tried to hammer him <laughs> with that when it was you know it was totally out of context and just this interesting smear job. So um, so you know Joe Biden's probably not going to you know nominate the next libertarian Supreme Court justice. Uh, Damon. Uh- Quick question about the the politics of this. What options do Democrats have? I mean, just in the most basic way of preventing uh, Amy Coney Barrett, you said. I thought it was Barrett, but I'll say Barrett because Damon knows a lot more than I do. Uh, What are their options right now of preventing her from uh, getting a seat on the court? Uh, I mean, uh, to prevent, basically, they don't, basically none. Uh, you know, there's little procedural things you can do to try to slow things down. Uh, the uh, the Supreme Court, the filibuster for Supreme Court justices is gone. Uh, the Democrats uh, under Harry Reid in the Senate uh, eliminated the filibuster for lower court appointees. And then with Justice Gorsuch, with, with Gorsuch's nominations, and Republicans got rid of it for Supreme Court nominees. So it doesn't, it, it only takes that bare majority um, to push it through. So you do you can do little things to try to slow things down and um, and drag the process out a little bit, but essentially they're they're powerless, uh, which is which is you know it's this is this has got a sting. You know, it's so close to the election and it's 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 you know it's 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 not you know this is like they they don't have a very strong hand to play. Essentially you can you can make it's it's a political basically it's just a political issue now. You can grandstand off it. You can try to make some substantive political points. I mean I do think there's an opportunity for any number of of the Senate Democrats who are, who get a chance to question her on the on the on the judiciary committee to um to really highlight the ways that that her legal philosophy is something that a lot of conservatives love but um a lot of liberals won't and to and to really draw that out and she's got like I said a lot of writings that um you know she yeah it'll be interesting to see how she tries to it's like, well, you know, as my personal opinion, I wrote as a law professor, but as a judge, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna look at every case fairly and impartially, you know, and there'll be that kind of dance. But, um, you know, she's 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 got a record as a as a as a legal conservative that um, that will be will be used against her. Certainly, will become fodder for the for the political for the presidential campaign, for for attack ads, you know, you name it. So that's I think that's that's kind of what they'll have to do. Well, I think the most disgusting thing about her is that she adopted two children from Haiti. Which Oof. is, uh, as a white colonizer, in taking these kids <laughs> and giving them a life that is is inauthentic. Uh, and I just want to say that as somebody who's written a lot about plagiarism, I don't want to let that idea go uncredited. That is an Ibram X. Kendi tweet who actually said something like that, which is one of the most disgraceful things I've read in a very long time. But uh, you know. Some- Someone, someone listening, someone listening is thinking to themselves, no, Moynihan, that's not what he meant. All he was doing yeah. was trying to illustrate that it is entirely possible mm-hmm. for a white person to adopt Negro children mm-hmm. or capital B black children mm-hmm. 
and still be a racist. That's all he was trying to do. No, I know. And the fact yeah, that he, the fact that that he used the grotesque analogy, yeah. the fact that he used the grotesque analogy yeah. is just kind of, you know, it's just his style. I like, I like know, that it doesn't require <laughs> any evidence that she's actually a racist. No, no. Of course right. not. No. But, no, to, no. But, but to Camille's point about this, what that kind of uh, alternate reading of it is incredibly stupid and even dumber than the original tweet because the idea that there are people out there no, maybe I've missed this. A whole bunch of racists out there. They're like, I got an idea. Let's adopt a black kid. <laughs> Raise the child for like 18 years. Pay uh, for the child to go to college. <laughs> and you know, develop a relationship. And they'll never know. Here's the thing that I, I don't think people understand about actual racists. They don't mind if people know. It's this thing like, oh, we have to, you know, they're really hiding it. It's like, no, 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 racists are pretty fine. With, yeah. uh, they're like, we believe in this. As a philosophy, uh, if one can be so generous as to call it that, there's no in the, the extra thing of, of just this idea that people are going around to adoption agencies going, aha, this is the best one. They'll never catch me now. I never, yeah. all my kids are black. I mean, uh, I married a black woman. I hate them all. It's a perfect uh, plan. It's Jeez. so bizarre. So and, bizarre. It, and I guess he was he was responding to someone who said that it would be interesting to see people subject her to, you know, withering criticism, mm. uh, perhaps suggesting that she's racist, considering she has adopted these these two children from Haiti and presumably so presumably loves them. And I, a I'm great mom. And, it, and I would I will say that <laughs> that was not the first tweet that I saw. The first tweet that I saw referring to um, her children um, and her, her family broadly um, was something suggesting that they had very serious questions about how this adoption took place and oh, yeah. what what the conditions of the the adoption were, which yeah. it's none of your fucking <laughs> but, but, but business. But you know what that is? It's just that the, she didn't the, kidnap the children. They seem very yeah, happy. No, it, that's, that's about all that matters, <laughs> asshole. It's the Supreme Court version of Hunter Biden. This is like the barisma <laughs> of adopting children. Like, what? Where is the barisma? Rece- I, don't, I don't. You know what? I don't know. You know why I don't know? Because he's not running for president. I don't care. His kid seems like a piece of shit. And you know, if he was running for president, I'd be really upset. Crack but, you know, it's fine. It crackhead. Well, we, we, he called him a crackhead <laughs> at the debate. He called him a crackhead. He called him a crackhead. <laughs> God, this wait, man. Wait, he said, he said Bi- Donald Trump, Biden president said of the United States, called, United States called his opponent's crackhead. son a crackhead oh. during well, the debate. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that, it, you know. that it's inaccurate, Camille. It is inaccurate. <laughs> the, the guy was doing cocaine. There's nothing wrong with oh, that. Oh, you're right. Crack is get us right. We know that. No, I you're right. A you're mental, right. Crack, a mental... crack is whack. <laughs> crack is cheap. <laughs> Those are Whitney Houston's words. Yeah, exactly. We, we know exactly. this. Exactly. That's a great clip when she's like on ABC and she's like, I don't do crack. Crap is, crack yeah. is cheap. She's like, I'm just That's blowing right. lines all night. But she, <laughs> it's like, it wasn't just a congressional black caucus. It was Whitney Houston that was had a disparity in like mental sentencing. With, uh, with crack cocaine and powder cocaine. And you know what? I'm the same way. He's not a crackhead. He did coke because that's fine. Crack There's not nothing wrong with that. He doesn't have a problem. He could afford as much coke as he needed exactly. on account of the millions of dollars yeah, he was collecting. Ukrainian coke money. <laughs> if my 12-year-old daughter didn't listen to this podcast a disturbing amount of time, I would explain the time that I bought $100 worth of crack, which I did once. You but, did. Uh, I won't. <laughs> for a story. For a story. And by the way, when yeah. you when you factor in Matt's age, that's a lot of crack. Yeah. Because that, that would have been, would've been like what, a three bucks crack. a rock back like when you were 1987. Same hotel. Yeah, that's wow. Yeah. That's, that's, real that's, money. A, that's wow. a lot of crack. 
Wait, what? is that before or after Marion Barry was busted on the video? Right around the same time. Like it was, uh, yeah. it was all peaking at once. <laughs> the bitch yeah, set me up. The Matt, bitch set Matt me was, up. Matt was the bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, Damon, Damon, while we're talking about history, um, I know that you have interest beyond. Look at that transition. Good, exactly. God, that's wow, good. Wow. I just I had to stop and recognize it. Yeah, and you ruined <laughs> it. You ruined it. No, by I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I want to call attention to. It. I want you people to know how good I am. It's just experience. So, Damon. Since we're talking about history here, I know that you have interest beyond the courts and in the area of American history. And it sounds like I heard a rumor anyways that you are working on a new book project. Is this true? Uh, it, it is true. The, uh, the book, in fact, is, 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 is now available. Find bookstores everywhere. It's called a, a Glorious Liberty, Frederick Douglass and the Fight for an Anti-Slavery Constitution. Uh, get it, get it. Well, it's wait, hot. it's available now. It's, it's out now. Yeah, it's. it's oh today, my! I'm going on Amazon while we're on. We're uh, as, as yeah, am just, uh, I. Faces lighting up. Yeah, it's been a it's been a wonderful uh, uh, official pub day because the book's actually been out for a couple weeks. It just it just sort of leaked out. I guess I don't know. People were telling me that it was that they were seeing it in Barnes and Nobles and places like that. So it's anyway. It's it's done. Very exciting. Um, it's a it's a history of Frederick Douglass's uh, constitutional thought. Uh, in the 1840s, Frederick Douglass uh, describes himself as a faithful disciple of William Lloyd Garrison. Just for the first 10 years of Douglass's career as an abolitionist, he's, uh, he's an ally of William Lloyd Garrison. Garrison's view is that the Constitution is a uh, covenant with death and an agreement with hell. It's, a, it's, it's dripping with mm -hmm. human blood, a pro-slavery compact that America should actually be broken up. Garrison wanted the, the, the northern states to secede from the south, from the Union. No union with slaveholders, that was the uh, slogan that was carried on the Liberator Garrison's paper. And Douglas had these views for about 10 years, and then he had, a, he had a change of mind. He started reading and studying constitutional history and thought and philosophy for himself. He started moving away from Garrison, and ultimately he broke with Garrison. He said the Constitution interpreted as it ought to be interpreted as a glorious liberty document and was a, mm -hmm. was a tool uh, for the fight against slavery, and he proceeded to, to wield that tool and use it to batter Battered the slaveholders and and fight for uh, fight for the fight, fight for the freedom of all. Damon, where was that speech? It was a famous speech that Douglas gave. It was in New York, wasn't it? Where where he he laid out this case of the Constitution as the sort of anti-slavery document and and uh, pushing back back against William Lloyd Garrison. He gave a he gave a very famous speech in 1852 uh, 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 on July 5th. It was a Fourth of July oration before the uh, Rochester, right. New York, right. uh, female Rochester, uh, yeah. women's anti-slavery society in Rochester. And that yeah. line, a glorious liberty document, is in is in that speech. Um, he, Douglas wrote three autobiographies in his life, and in the second one, he uh, the first one he writes in the 1840s when he's, he's very much still a Garrisonian. Wendell Phillips, who was Garrison's sort of lieutenant, second-in-command, uh, wrote this introduction to it. And then, but Douglas's uh, second autobiography, My Bondage, My Freedom, that's written in the 1850s when Douglas is broken with Garrison, has gone out on his own. Douglas moves to New York State, leaves Massachusetts, and becomes uh, a part of a, a group that were kind of called the political abolitionists. So this is people like uh, Garrett Smith, Lysander Spooner. And these were, these were people who believed the constitution was, was anti-slavery should be used for anti-slavery purposes. Um, and uh, Douglas, you know, he falls in with them. He, he becomes the champion of that point of view. Uh, these are people who are involved in the forming of the Liberty party, the free soil party, and then eventually the Republican party and, and really driving, driving forces in anti-slavery politics. Damon, how would you say your book fits into the contemporary zeitgeist uh, with respect to the 1619 Project? And I think just yesterday, uh, Gavin Newsom, the extraordinarily 
awful governor of California. Um, he had a tweet because he was celebrating a, a new innovation in California, which California, as this tweet says, California just became the first state in the nation to mandate the study and development of a proposal for reparations. Our past is one of slavery, racism, and injustice. Our systems were built to oppress people of color. It's past time we acknowledge that. Um, why is Gavin Newsom white splaining to Frederick Douglass? Well, there's a there's a lot there's a lot to unpack in in those questions. A lot to lot to respond to. So let me let me just let me start maybe at the with 1619 project. Um, and and one thing I'll just say before I kind of talk about the the problems with it is just just to be clear. I, I, many of my favorite historians are people I have big ideological disagreements with. I have a lot of Marxist historians on my bookshelf. Um, some of my favorite historians. And have learned a lot from from these people. And even when there's people like Eric Foner and Philip Foner and C. Van Woodward, and you know, list goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, th- th- those are those are people who did tremendous research. You know, the facts are there. You read you read those books, and you learn things, and you want to go to the sources, and you you know, the stuff that they dug up, and they found. You want to read that yourself. And the disagreements are, tend to be about matters of interpretation. But you you always you trusted them on the facts. And I think one of the problems with the 1619 Project is. Is is you know there's there you, you, there's there's reasons to be distrustful on the facts and to me that's a that's a big problem when anybody is is doing history or purporting to do history, um, you know and like I mean just not even talking about the sort of the response to the critics you know when you have people like Jim Oakes and uh, James McPherson and Gordon Gordon mm-hmm. Wood when you have them. Uh, saying, look, there are real problems with this thing, and and we have real reservations about this thing being taught in high schools. You know, you you have to take that seriously. You you know, to to say that like, oh, these you know, stuff about like white historians, you know, and and just stuff like that. I mean, that's really that's that's. I mean, that that should tell people that this is intellectually um, very. You know, there's real problems. Uh, it's on. There's some real shaky foundations there. I mean, look. One of the things that I think the 1619 Project set out to do that I completely agree with is to is to study and understand the role of slavery in American history and slavery in the Constitution. I mean, I wrote a book about this. My first book, which is about the Supreme Court, is really a history of the 14th Amendment in many ways. And the 14th Amendment comes out of the anti-slavery movement. It comes out of the anti-slavery legal and political philosophies of the free soil and Republican parties. Um, I have been interested in these questions for and, and writing and studying and working on them for, for over 20 years. So I, I applaud people doing that kind of work. There's a lot of stuff I, you know, there's plenty of stuff in it that I do agree with that I think is, is interesting. But, you know, just some of the, the early stuff about how the American Revolution is basically fought to, to preserve slavery. I mean, that, that's, that's not something you can substantiate. They ultimately had to walk that back, took like a year, should have taken a day, um, a lot of other problems it just and then a sort of sort of a theme running through it which is that um racism is sort of the only story guiding story it's absolutely part of the story but anti-racism is part of the story too or not to, i mean i understand that's a modern buzzword i don't mean it in that way but anti-slavery mm-hmm. um this you know this idea there was a, there's a sentence in there that's like you know black americans largely fought alone i mean i i think we absolutely need it's to talk absurd. you need yeah. to talk about the accomplishments of, of black americans mm-hmm. i mean the idea that lincoln liberated the slaves no no a lot of people a lot of black people liberated themselves i mean like to be clear you mm-hmm. that is that is mm-hmm. essential to the history i wrote a book about frederick douglas i mean i i believe you you tell you th- this is history we do need to know and understand 
But, um, you know, you can't talk about Frederick Douglass without also talking about some of his white allies and also people like Salmon P. Chase, who is so important for the constitutional thought. And he's ultimately a chief justice of the Supreme Court, but so important to the constitutional thought of the anti-slavery movement. Of course, like Lysander Spooner, whose book, The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, is probably the biggest influence on Frederick Douglass. And I have I go into that in great detail in one chapter. Senator Spooner is someone who. I didn't know that. Yeah, Spooner is famous in libertarian circles because he wrote these. He be, he basically becomes a, a total anarchist, and he writes these 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 um, really powerful anarchist um, pamphlets and manifestos. And he and he and he essentially goes he goes against the Constitution. But he wrote in the 1840s a book called The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, um, which was hugely influential. It basically was kind of the Bible of the political abolitionists. And Garrett Smith, who was a New York landowner, big uh, fundraiser, and who was the guy who who helped Frederick Douglass start his first newspaper when he when Douglass broke from the the Massachusetts William Lloyd Garrison crowd, went to New York State, started the North Star, his paper. Garrett Smith was there helping him out, and Garrett Smith was also a big funder and supporter of uh, Lysander Spooner, and it was those two were just had a big influence on Douglass. And Douglass credits them. I mean, he says that reading their writings helped, you know, change my mind and moving to New York state where he, he was no longer surrounded by the Garrisonians, but he was now surrounded by these other abolitionists, this whole other school, you know, he had to grapple with their, their ideas and it took him a few years and you can see it. It's in his letters, it's in his writings, it's in his columns, you know, and I trace this in the book where he's, you know, he's, he's moving away from the Garrisonian position. doesn't happen overnight. He really broods on it, struggles with it, but he ultimately comes to this different position. Um, so just, you know, so that anyways, in terms of the 1619 project, you know, I, I have, I, I applaud the idea that, 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 that history is, is essential and we need to, we need to tell it, but, um, you know, let's not let the ideology blind us and, or not blind us, but just sort of really kind of dictate the outcomes. It's like, there's some ideal, I think there were ideological choices made first, and then it's, kind of cherry picking history or in some cases, you know, actually misrepresenting history to kind of push, push a different kind of narrative. And, and that's, that's, that's a big problem. I wrote this book with no knowledge of the 1619 project. It was basically done before the project came out. Um, it's, you know, it's been in production with the press for a little bit. So it's, this was, you know, this was not a response or anything like that. I mean, I really hadn't this, this just something I was doing independently, but I do think you could, you could read the two side by side and, and maybe get a fuller picture. I think that one of the things that is always worth pointing out is that um, it's become a cozy myth itself that there is myth-making and an, an, an overabundance of myth-making when it comes to American history. We go back to these books of the 19th, the 1940s, um, and you see this, of course, right? You know, this very simple narratives of American history. That really hasn't existed for a very long time, a very, very long time, particularly in the schools, too. I mean... This sense that somehow people believe this, and it's a very, very easy sell. It happens in the UK, too. Um, I was just listening to something about this today. Basically, we have to, re we have to, you know, British history is not just all these glorious imperial. They don't, that's not being taught to people in England, I'm sorry to say. Um, there might be some places, but by and large, it's not. The same thing is true um, in the US. And I, I, I mentioned a book um, a few months ago, maybe four or five months ago, um, about, God, who was it, Frances, um, whatever, who wrote this book about in the 1970s, where she went through American, American history books that, that uh, high school students were reading. And the, for the time, even when I'm reading, good God, in the 70s, these are pretty progressive books. And the idea that this is something where everyone is just learning, you know, that the Thanksgiving was this lovely thing, and 
American Indians and uh, and uh, settlers lived in harmony. I didn't have that, you know, 30 plus years ago. And the stuff that I see of students now. So when I hear these people, the 1619 project, I, we need to actually get this version of history out there. There are a thousand versions of this history out there. There are a thousand, like, I mean, and it's like the Howard Zinn. I mean, that book has sold how many, what, four million copies, five million copies, some absurd amount. More than the people's any, history, of the United yeah, States. and more than yeah. any other popular history book um, in America by by leaps and bounds. I mean, now there's the Oliver Stone's version of that, which is always trending on Netflix because they made a film version of it. And you know, this version of history is the dominant one, not the other way around. It's it's absurd and crazy to think that we need to go and correct the record. There are people who have differences of opinion on this, of course, and you know you. David mentioned Gordon Wood, who I love, and I especially love him because he's a historian who has an absurd Boston accent, which like undercuts all of his credibility when he starts talking. He's like, yeah, fucking back in the back in the day with the fucking muskets. And I'm like, oh my God, this is not credible just because of that voice. And then you read his book, Empire of Liberty, which I, I read a couple of years ago, Dorsoff's book, really fantastic book about the early republic. And these guys are great. And you know, Damon um also said that that he likes a lot of um Left-wing historians, I mean, Eric Foner is a great example of that. I mean, I'm on the same page. I think Eric Foner is fantastic, and you can learn uh, a ton from him. But if you think that you're going to read Eric Foner's stuff from 30 years ago, and it's going to have some sort of white vision of history that, uh, that kind of treats slavery in a, in a kind of you know, passive way, you're insane. So, I mean, this, the, 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 to, to debunk the myth, the myth itself, I think, is a myth. I think that uh, sometimes people are responding to um, y'all are too old for this, but Chevrolet used to have a commercial uh, in the seventies and eighties about baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. Uh, I think they were, <laughs> which I mean, sounds pretty good. They go together in the good old USA. Um, uh, they're responding to commercials. They're responding to uh, military mm -hmm. flyovers before the yeah. uh, you know, ceremonial first pitch of a baseball game. And I get it. Sometimes those things, those, they used to make me a lot more angry than they do now. Um, uh, you know, the common everyday jingoism, but that's not actually the history book that, that high school students are reading and hasn't no. been since. For, 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 I don't for know. A very long, no, yeah. for a very long time. And jingoism that is empty and silly and stupid and, and you know, doesn't, I, I think that you should read kind of John Hershey on Hiroshima. Just, I mean, you shouldn't just say, well, this was the greatest thing ever. We, we you know, bombed, the Japanese three days apart in, in um, August 1945. I have a slightly different view on that, but you know you should teach that stuff, of course, right? But replacing bad history with bad history is what we typically do because nobody likes um, nuance. We want this binary, we want this black and white. But you know, so if you ask anyone, and this is always the test, ask anyone about uh, how weak, and this is the wrong word always because my ancestors weren't here. Um, how we, quote unquote, uh, treated the Native Americans, right? They say it was horrible. It was genocide, genocide. Okay, great. So, so tell me what happened. No idea. No one has any idea. This is, just, this is just the narrative. And there is, of course, the brutality that you can read about in, in, in abundance. And then there's also, you know, stuff about you know, people losing their lives because of imported European diseases. Now, there's a lot of nuance to that story. But that nuance has disappeared in favor of another blanket thing that there's just, you know, 
everyone was treated horribly. Everyone was going around smashing people's heads and, and cutting them, you know, beheading people and the rest. It's not true. It's true in some senses, but it's much, much more complicated than that. So we've replaced the thing where this is the best country in the world and everything we've done in the past um, proves it to good God, have we ever done anything good? Um, both of them are wrong. I'd like to commend people to read if they haven't, and I know that most of you hopefully have, but Camille Foster, and we're recording this on Thursday night, um, Camille last night late uh, wrote uh, really, I thought, tremendous, one of his better uh, tweet threads, and this was in response to Gavin Newsom uh, starting uh, crowing about mm -hmm. his new reparations commission, but that was hitting on a point that Damon made before of, of that, and that Camille made before, uh, which is that um, in, embedded in the uh, Constitution, the idea of America and the Declaration of Independence, certainly there is this tremendous stuff that Frederick Douglass um, uh, obviously um, was one of the great transmitters of, of that, you know, this can be, these can be the seeds of abolitionism. Um, mm. the, the global abolitionist movement um, is part of the fruits of the American Enlightenment, too. Um, so I would love to hear Camille maybe talk just a little bit about that um, and Damon, too. Um, and then at some point I would like, and maybe you can sort of wrap those up in the same answers a little bit, the one counter argument would be like, yeah, and this kind of goes to what Moynihan was saying, yeah, but somehow America has just always been a bit more violent in the average place. But uh, Camille, if you could elucidate a little bit about... And I want to say on Camille's tweet thread, I, a friend of mine in California, um, who does not know Camille, uh, sent it to me through that. And I said, funny that you sent me that tweet from this guy, Camille Foster. Um, <laughs> and he was like, this is the best distillation. And it's a guy who lives in San Francisco um, and uh, was a big fan of Camille's uh, tweet thread. So, so that's oh, where I read it. I read it because somebody, a good. friend of mine sent it to me. Uh, Cam yeah. Camille, I would I would love to hear you talk just a little bit about the uh, the 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 importance of America in the in the global abolition context. Well, I, I feel like we've we've kind of underscored this, and we've actually talked about it quite a bit right. before on the podcast. I mean, I have I I am someone who has a first generation American. My family came to this country from Jamaica, and my politics are interesting. Right. Like I, I'm so, an so anarcho capitalist. Uh, well, I'm an anarcho capitalist. I, I I'm someone who knows who Lysander Spooner is and have, have read his work in the past. And I'm thoroughly persuaded by it. I'm someone who is not at all inclined towards the kind of cheap jingoistic uh, patriotism. You know, I I'm, I'm don't have a lot of like red, white and blue T-shirts to the extent I've ever worn a flag pin. Um, it's been monochrome stainless steel. Um, or maybe it was sterling silver. I don't remember. Probably upside down. Um, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> never, never upside down. Um, you know, I don't care if you sit or stand or kneel when the Pledge of Allegiance is happening. Um, but I do care whether or not you're going to try to place the American story in some kind of historical context. And when you do put it in context, a couple of things are important to me. Um, and maybe I should just say the most fundamental thing that's of importance to me is that to the extent you're talking about slavery, you're not imagining that this institution began in the United States or that it was unique to the United States. And the, the notion of the United States being this uniquely depraved place that, as Gavin Newsom put it, you know, our systems, our constitution were built to oppress people of color. 
Um, I didn't know I, California I was built on slavery. <laughs> I didn't. I was looking well, at the timeline there. I was like, that doesn't make sense. It's a little odd, isn't it's it? It's a little odd. Um, yeah. it, it, you know, and it's it's not to say that bad things haven't happened here. They most certainly have. No one is making claims to the contrary. Yeah. Um, it just seems to me that it is it is worth acknowledging that if slavery is something that is nearly ubiquitous throughout human history, if it's existed on every continent, if it predates the United States um, of America's existence, if it predates the, the, the transatlantic slave trade, um, then the fact that it existed here um, and even persisted for some time uh, before it was taken, taken down uh, in, through the Civil War, um, it seems that that is, that is an important detail but it's hardly the most noteworthy detail about the United States and whatever it is that makes the United States exceptional. Um, it doesn't seem like that's the most fundamental thing. Mm. And, and I also think that designing a system of government at a time when, you know, written constitutions were not a thing. This notion of individual rights was, it was, a, it was the new wave and they decided to make it the core value and they did it imperfectly and over time, this system, which had been designed and is a bit clunky and still doesn't really work in a lot of important ways, um, shout out to F.A. Hayek, but that the system could be improved upon over time and that it did in, include in its DNA the, the right virtues to allow it to be, you know, the mechanism, the mechanism by which, you know, once, once the sin of slavery once that institution was defeated you know this document could be amended and when the civil rights movement was taking place in the united states this document these ideals could serve as the framework the template mm. for the civil rights movement and the instrument for actually bringing about the kind of reforms that people wanted that's i right. mean it's that's kind of remarkable yeah and it's worth celebrating that and i i do think that this kind of cheap performative denigration of america and this this celebrating it as the worst imaginable place you know our past is one of slavery racism and injustice our systems were built to oppress people of color to the extent that's true they failed fucking miserably yeah, that's right <laughs> <laughs> because because they seem they seem to have worked in a pretty remarkable way to not only uplift people of color, but also the non-property owning citizens of this country who originally also found themselves in a position of subjugation and the women who found themselves in a position of subjugation. We, we have created something far better than even the framers imagined using the mechanisms that we received from them and really fulfilling in, yeah. uh, to a much fuller extent than they could have imagined um, or, or done themselves the ideals that they outlined. And I think that is remarkable and something worth celebrating. And you can celebrate that without ignoring the many ways that America has historically been inadequate um, in terms of, of, of living up to those virtues and still is. And that project of perfecting it is something we can continue to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, look, I, I think that before I want to hear Damon on this, and I just a, a, a quick um, a, a point on this is that I don't believe that Gavin Newsom thinks this. I don't think he believes what he wrote. No, there's no I way. Don't, he I don't does. think so either. Actually, because because so he either. he's he's not a dummy, um, except for his first marriage, that was a bit of a bad choice, um, you know. But Donald Trump Jr. picked up the pieces there, um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's a Wikipedia entry for you. 
Um, the thing about this, which I find remarkable, is that if you believe that the the founding of this country, the bones of this country, is entirely that, that's what it was built on, uh, period, full stop, then either you're lying, making an ideological point, or you're remarkably stupid. I don't believe that he's remarkably stupid. The thing that I think is really interesting about this is that, you know, the complexity of humans, the complexity of the past and governments and, you know, even people like Frederick Douglass, we had a conversation about, about this and um, uh, the suffragettes, uh, which I, I didn't get into as much as I wanted to because it was like wildly misrepresented in a bunch of like viral videos about how um, some of the suffragettes were, were racist. Um, the thing that I think is really interesting is that it, it is actually a totalitarian, authoritarian, utopian idea that people are perfect, that there's perfect heroes. That is the idea of totalitarianism. You go to the Soviet Union and you see a, you know, you know, a, a statue of, you know, Comrade Stakhanov, um, who, you know, produced more coal than anyone else and gave us the word Stakhanova. There's not, there's no complexity. There's no complexity of any, any statue of any, you know, venerated person in, you know, Cuba, for instance. I mean, Jose Marti, not communist, he's just a Cuban hero, a hero of Latin America. There's not going to be like, well, here's the bad stuff. Yeah. The totalitarians don't do that, right? And the thing is, is everybody has these bad traits. And what we've lazily, stupidly called cancel culture, because, you know, this is, this is, you know, we encapsulate these things in small words. But the, whatever that is, that thing, if somebody is about to be, you know, deified, somebody's about to be put on the, on the, you know, logo or the, I'm sorry, on the logo, but is going to be the, the, the mascot of a school. If somebody's going to have a statue devoted to them, a school named after them, we have to go sifting through their trash, making sure they never said anything bad. Said anything bad, of course, by the standards of 2020 and not by the standards of, say, 1750 or 1850 or 1950 even. So this is an, a, a weird moment, I think, in which people are empowered and have been empowered and feel incredibly righteous about finding the things in history where somebody did something wrong, said something wrong, you know, ran afoul of, you know, social and societal norms of 2020, you know, 200 years ago. The only people who do that and do that with any seriousness is not, is, you know, sort of thuggish country, totalitarian country. A serious country doesn't do that. Serious people don't do that. I never protested the W.E.B. Du Bois Library at the university that I went to. Because I think Du Bois is a totally fascinating guy. I mean, early writings especially. I mean, he's one of those guys who gets a thousand times worse as he gets older, right? And his early writings are really fascinating. He becomes a Stalinist at the end of his life. And, you know, as I've often pointed out, writes one of the funniest 1953 obituaries. I didn't say, oh, my God, this is a man who wrote an obituary for a man who for a dictator who killed 30, 40, 50 million people, take his name off the library. No, Du Bois is a complex person and to throw the baby out with the bathwater and miss some of his great writings and particularly his early stuff would be a travesty. But we are in that moment that, you know, these people who have had problems, problematic views, I don't want to live in that world. 
And that's a world where perfectionism of you know, ideology of sort of person. I mean, this is, of course, what happened to Thomas Jefferson, right? There's no need to read anything Jefferson wrote because he owns land. What is, is there, a, is there a deeper, more interesting story there in which we can condemn Thomas Jefferson too, but actually learn something from him also? No, of course not. Move on. And I'll tell you what, the one thing I will say is that you go and look and you'll find a number of these pieces. After Donald Trump, after Charlottesville, Donald Trump said, you know, next they're going to be tearing down Thomas Jefferson, George Washington. And there were a number of pieces from a number of people, historians, saying this is the absurdity of this president. It's not true. This never happened. And, you know, it took a year and a half because we're on that perfectionism jag. Everybody has to be perfect and have lived the exemplary 2020 life in 17 years. Damon Root. To convert that into a jackass question for Damon. Yeah. um, wasn't there a statue of Frederick Douglass taken down in the middle of the insane summer uh, or something like that? And did you get down to the bottom of Did you go there uh, and lash yourself to the mast of uh, Frederick Douglass and defend his honor? It, it seemed like that was maybe one of these these stories that was a little misreported, that the that the statue was uh, was was had been knocked down, but not as part of some kind of a statue busting protest, but just some kind of like teenage general teenage Vandalism that had already been knocked down before people noticed it. It it seemed like that was um, that got some attention, but like there was maybe like a little bit less there. Um, but I mean, certainly there, you know, you you could you could imagine some some idiot thinking they're fighting for you know social justice and 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 toppling. I mean, that did happen, right? There were abolitionist statues pulled over by by morons who didn't know what they were doing. Uh, Whittier in a France, I think Francis Goodleaf Whittier or whatever the hell is it was in Wisconsin, right? There no, was in a, actually Whittier, California. Um, but there was a Wisconsin one too. It was not, I think uh, those were yeah, abolitionists or, or, or suffragettes or something that we're, we're not covering. But, yeah. anyway. but one, one, maybe one quick point to, uh, uh, touching on Jefferson is I think one, one, one way you can think about um, the, the, the founders, the framers, and who, who, I mean, someone like Jefferson, I mean, there's, you're not getting any defense from me of Jefferson's hypocrisy. I mean, he writes these extraordinary words in Declaration of Independence. Well, at the same time, he not only is, is, is subjugating human beings and owning human property, but almost certainly uh, members of his own family, um, children of Sally Hemings, were, were enslaved on, on, on his plantation. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I don't think there's, there's any defense you can make of, make of that. But... What about these words he wrote? What about the Declaration of Independence? And to and to then to go back to Frederick Douglass, I think you can look at how Frederick Douglass took those words to heart, and then you can look at someone else who took those words, and what he did with them. And that's John C. Calhoun, the famous South Carolina uh, senator, statesman, basically one of the most important, influential pro-slavery politician and theorist of the of yeah. of the of the century. Uh, John C. Calhoun. By in 1850, denounces Thomas Jefferson and denounces the Declaration of Independence. He said that Jefferson was, was you know, infatuated with the ideas of John Locke. Was infatuated with this idea that all men are created equal. He said that it was it was wrong to introduce that into our revolution. It it it, it was this it was this this poison pill. He said it, it took some uh, some time to germinate, but eventually it produced these poisonous fruits. And he's essentially talking about the abolitionists. That the abolitionists take those words to heart, all men are created equal and are born with certain unalienable rights. You know, you, you read that language, you think, well, how, how does slavery, how can slavery be reconciled with that? When, of course, it can't. 
Um, and so the fact that Jefferson was living hypocritically doesn't change those words. And so Calhoun literally has to denounce Jefferson has to denounce the 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 natural rights tradition, the Lockean tradition, and he explicitly denounces Locke, explicitly denounces Jefferson, and says that you know these these are these are terrible ideas, and we should have nothing to do with them because he understands the threat that they pose to the slave system. And this is the Declaration of Independence, and and Calhoun did something similar with the Constitution, where he he wanted to amend it to essentially uh, prioritize the interests of the slaveholders because free states were starting, starting to outnumber the slave states. And he said, well, that's, you know, that's going to destroy slavery. So we need to create this permanent slaveholding majority, kind of bake it into the constitution. And so, 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 so essentially he has to run away from these founding ideas in order to defend slavery by 1850. Whereas Frederick Douglass, on the other hand, he, he, Douglass embraces those ideas and he weaponizes them against slavery because of course they can be weaponized for that purpose very easily. The fact that the, um, that the people at the time didn't, didn't, some of them did and some of them didn't do that, but that, that there's clearly hypocrisy and there's clearly failings at the time doesn't change the power of those words. And I think you can look at the women's rights movement. You can look at all sorts of freedom movements around the, around the world. I mean, Ho Chi Minh quoted from the Declaration of Independence early on in his, uh, in his, in his struggles for, in, in Vietnam. I mean, it's just, these, these were words that resonated with people all over the world. Yeah, and it was, it was often uh, uh, cited by people in the New Left who yes. um, loved Ho Chi Minh and saying, you know, look, he's, he's just the Democrat in the same way our founders were, it's so much so that he's, you know, using the American Constitution as the, as the groundwork for some sort of future Vietnamese constitution. Yeah, yeah, he may have departed a little bit from that, from some of that as time went on. <laughs> Slight difference. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you, I, but, I, you know, Jefferson in black pajamas in the punji yeah. sticks. It's not <laughs> underreported story. Gradations, gradations, <laughs> subtle, subtle differences there. Well, Damon, I, I, um, I am grateful for you uh, having joined us today. I wonder if you've got any parting thoughts for us on on this topic or the courts broadly um, or just the general notion that our institutions, that our system is sort of fundamentally corrupt. Like, do you give a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down to that to that suggestion? Well, I mean, let me how about this? Um, your your typical punditry about the courts, about the Supreme Court, the federal courts is all it's conservative judges, liberal judges, and that and they and, and the punditry would assume that that tells you the whole story. And I think that that is those those labels often obscure more than they reveal. And they can be um, they can be quite, quite um, unhelpful. And I, I wrote a piece for reason recently that that dug into the way that the so-called conservative federal courts, conservative federal judges, Trump appointed judges uh, were were at each other's throats on all sorts of criminal justice issues. We see that on the Supreme Court with Gorsuch versus Alito on the Fourth Amendment. You see it on the lower courts on the Fifth Circuit. There's a huge battle brewing over qualified immunity between Judge Don Willett, a, a personal favorite of mine, who's a Trump appointee, a former Texas Supreme cited, Court justice. Cited Damon uh, Root in the past. He, I do. I do appreciate that he cited my book in an opinion. Yes, um, that he's he's a he's a, he's a, he's great... a personal favorite of yours. Why? <laughs> well, I think he's got the right ideas on the law, Michael. You know, what can I say? Sure. <laughs> and he is he is butting heads on the Fifth Circuit with a fellow at Trump appointee, uh, Jim Ho, who is a who is the two of them. Their confirmation hearings. They were sitting at the same table at, at the Senate Judiciary Committee. 
and they are and they are and they are battling over this issue because they have fundamentally different ideas about 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 qualified immunity and about the role it should play in criminal justice and you know and it goes on and on so i would just i would just urge everyone to dig a little deeper you know it's it's you know abortion there's certain issues guns are becoming that citizens united there's just certain things that just become these kind of culture war touchstones and 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 certainly you know left right divides up little can can divide up neatly in in some ways on some of those issues but a lot of really important stuff in criminal justice i think is one of the biggest areas um left right you know the conservative liberal it doesn't tell you a lot justice scalia the late justice scalia was a lot better in the fourth amendment than justice Breyer, who was was quite deferential to the police in those kind of cases and and justice gorsuch uh, is is more quote unquote liberal on the Fourth Amendment than than a lot of the liberals on the federal bench. So you 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 don't don't get kind of caught into this you know simplistic Republican Democrat liberal conservative thing because uh, there's 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 more interesting and more complicated stuff going on. Well, thank you very much, sir. We appreciate you, Damon, as always. And uh, folks, I would commend to you this book that I I just bought myself. October first today. Liberty. It came out today. Right? Yeah, Do we have I, them on Pub Day? We have them on Pub Day. It's incredible. Can I say the title of the book, gentlemen? Yeah. Please. No. A, <laughs> Stop I, would, it. I would say, please, please say it. A Glorious Liberty, Frederick Douglass, and the Fight for an Anti Slavery Constitution. Go buy the motherfucker. Buy it. Buy the book. Seriously, buy What's it. What's wrong with you? Like, it's got a nice Why haven't you bought nice the book cover. already? You it's just heard all the guy. of you, even the percentage of you listening to this, buy the book or just like order it and like pretend that you're buying it, whatever. Let's get let's get that thing. Let's get that Dude, thing on what does order it and pretend? I don't know. No. It mean. Who are you talking to? I think what what he means is buy it and pretend you'll read it. You pretend which, you'll read fine. it. Fine. Yeah, that's yeah. good. It looks very right. handsome. Well, it looks very handsome. It. Very handsome on the bookshelf. It can be furniture. Oh gosh, so you. smart. <laughs> Thank you, Damon. It was lovely. Thanks, to, lovely to have you for the third time. Bye, Thank Damon. you very much, guys. It was great. Thanks. All right. Later. Bye. He's all right. He's all right. Well, Damon, Damon is an exceptional human. I like him a lot. Um, we've, we've pushed his book. Um, now, I suppose we should talk about some other things that have happened, including the presidential debate, which just happened. And there are a couple of narratives going into it, mainly how badly is Donald Trump going to murder Joe Biden on the debate stage? And it didn't actually come across that way. Um, I think Donald, Donald Trump kind of stalked Joe Biden, rhetorically speaking. Um, throughout the the debate, badgering him, interrupting him, seemingly trying to kind of get him off uh, off rhythm. Um, Joe Biden, I, I thought, uh, just you know, from a purely kind of aesthetic, stylistic standpoint, he performed far better than I could have expected. Um, and again, this is just one of those sort of soft benefit of low expectations, <laughs> perhaps. Set um, the expectations low. That's great. I really, I really just expected it to be a total debacle, and it was, it was. but not because Joe Biden looked like he was going to fall asleep uh, most of the time. I, I actually think, and I've heard this observation made, um, but I certainly thought it at the time as well, that Donald Trump badgering him throughout actually gave Joe Biden an opportunity to not have to answer questions at length. Yeah. He, ba- and, he bailed him out and that so many times. Probably to his advantage. And Joe Biden just being able to retreat to, would you shut up, man? Yeah. Could you shut up? Yeah. Whatever. Like uh, all of that can shit. Can I use that with you guys? It's like something I would say. You, you could try. You could try. It won't work. <laughs> it won't work. Um, so I, I'll just say that, that Trump seemed completely ineffectual throughout most of the evening from my standpoint. Um, he, he looked like the aggressor 
um, when uh, Wallace sort of shut him down, um, he, he looked like he was getting disciplined, which is, you know, just the kind of thing that the president generally tries to avoid. And now there are questions as to whether or not future debates will feature um, mics that could get cut off at any time, which I imagine the, the Trump. They've already objected. There's at least some possibility that the sort of Biden camp may actually try to to get out of having further debates, although I think that's probably unlikely. I don't think that he wants that. Yeah, I think that's unlikely, especially after the the previous performance where apparently they shot him up with cocaine before they got started, which works. That was I read that in The Washington Post. Why on earth after that performance would you say, I don't want more of this if you're if you're in the Biden camp? I mean, you might want to say that if you're in the Trump camp and say that yeah. really did not did not go well. But yeah, yeah. The, the expectation that he was going to be a doddering fool and only that. I mean, his answers were bad. And, you know, they were sometimes mm-hmm. incoherent. But it uh, Donald Trump is is so bad at this. Mm-hmm. And he was 2016 was quite different. I mean, remember him being f- a lot funnier. I mean, he was he was delivering a lot more jokes. He was stalking the yeah. stage. He had, you know, a lot of good zingers and, you know, he didn't know policy as well. And I say that. And again, well, he, he still he still doesn't hey, know policy. Well, well here's well. the thing. I say that with <laughs> reservations because he's speaking to policy a little bit more than he did in the past, uh-huh. which would be surprising if he didn't because he's the president and he has years <laughs> of experience now in, in actually, you know, conducting American policy in so many ways. But the thing that was um, amazing to me was that there, were, there was nothing. He had one funny joke about Biden's the biggest mask I've ever seen it was so bizarre. So it was like, it was like surrealistic when he was talking about Biden's mask. Did you know? Like, I thought it was actually kind of funny. I had, I had like a oh, thousand yard was, stare on the morphine trip by then. But, yeah, uh, it was just, but I think that the thing that um, I thought was so strange, about it, like you can't, I came back, I watched it in North Carolina with a group of Republicans. Um, a county Republican uh, party. They didn't really want us there, by the way. Um, and it's incredible how the whole fake news thing is just a thousand times worse than it's ever been. Like you walk in, mm. everyone's like sneering at you, really sneering. It's just it's incredibly uncomfortable to be around around a lot of these people. Some are incredibly nice. I met a libertarian woman who was voting for Joe Jorgensen, um, who was uh, as she was going off about identity identity politics, uh, identified as. Uh, a quarter Chinese, a quarter black, a quarter Hispanic, and a quarter white, which it was. <laughs> and I looked at her and I was like, yeah, that's about right. That seems about right. <laughs> yeah, and a military, uh, and, and it was in the military. Um, but, you know, most of the people there were, were actually, you know, they were really excited at the beginning. And by the end, and we're talking to each other. I mean, I don't, yeah. I'd love to see how many people stuck around more than 30 minutes. But when I was watching the coverage the next morning, because when I'm in hotels, is the only people who watch cable news. And so I'm watching the coverage the next morning, and I have to say it was the first time, you know, I, I, I have a deep loathing of Fox for of a whole variety of reasons. I turned on Fox, and they had, you know, some Democratic strategists on who used to work for Obama and some goofball Republican talking. And then I turned on MSNBC, and there's just no variety of panels. There's just, like, literally all Democrats, lefties, uh, Biden supporters. And the hyperbole was really something else. That was a really gross debate. It was a bad debate. It was something that I would wish upon no one and everyone disgraced themselves. But they, every commentator on television was trying to outdo the previous. 
that was like this was worse than the Cambodian genocide. This was the Cambodian genocide of television <laughs> debates. And everyone's like, I, and then the next person was like, I, yeah. as an American, wanted to smother <laughs> my child with a pillow so the child didn't have to grow up in this shithole world. And I was like, yeah. you know, it was a, it, what do you expect? It's this asshole who's been doing this stuff for how long now? I mean, let's say, we'll say, really say 2015, everyone starts paying attention to this. So you get five years of him doing a variation of this. And he's particularly horrible last night because he's stepping on everyone's line. But why, like, this is exactly what Democrats should want. Because he, I mean, that was own goal after own goal. And particularly mm -hmm. because the second Biden started, you know, speaking Esperanto and realizing that it was his nap time, Trump came in and saved him. <laughs> yeah. Because he couldn't stop hating him. He would come and be like, look at you, you fucking fool. And like, I'm like, no, 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 no. He's got the rope out. Just let him, let him hang himself. He's about to. And I, it's, it's so undisciplined that, you know, the lack of discipline, I think, in 2016 was an incredibly beneficial thing for him. His just flying around the stage, mocking everyone. Everyone's like, this is the change that we need. You know, this is not the si, si puede change of, uh, of Obama. This is the change of this kind of psychopath. Now it just comes off as, you know, like desperate, um, like half-witted, not particularly funny, and, you know, doesn't land a lot of punches, you know? I mean, there's there were some moments where I think he did okay. But uh, by and large, you know, I mean, Biden was all over the place. I mean, he was all yeah. over the place. He could have exploited so many of these things that he bullshitted about, whether it was the Green New Deal stuff, you know. The court packing. Court packing stuff. I'm not going to answer that. I mean, that's mm -hmm. when Donald Trump gets in and says, no, no, no. Answer the question. This is a very simple question. Yeah, the only right. only time he really like buttonholed him on the answer to the question was about which police union endorsed you. I know, and, and actually, and that, it, it, he was saved by Chris Wallace on that. But but like you know, of all of the villains in the current story right now, yeah, police unions are near the top. Yeah, and this is in the, yeah. in the middle of a question where Trump, you know, or an answer where Trump started by criticizing Biden and rightly so for his fingerprints in the 1994 crime bill and other things like that. But like that's the fundamental incoherence of Trump. It's like, it's, oh my god, it's so I can't believe yeah. that you know you're responsible for jailing all the black people, and that's why all of the police unions <laughs> love me because you're soft on crime. It's not you called them super predators. Which, actually, <laughs> yeah. that was actually, that was Hil that was Hillary, and and even then that wasn't. Yeah, well, but, but, but whatever. Trump cites a a uh, Oregon police chief who supports him, who before the guys finished before Trump finished the sentence has issued a statement saying, I do not support him. No. So, yeah, I mean, it's not like, <laughs> what, what, do you think you're going to keep your job in Oregon? Um, I mean, I think yeah. part of, uh, and, and we've I maybe mentioned this one one or two times before, but, like, part of the problem with the humor, which I think you're right to point out, Moynihan, and other people have too, is that humor depends on where you're standing, the delivery and on the where mm. the audience is standing, too. And, like, if you're sitting there and and experiencing that debate as a shit show in Dana Bash's um, immortal words, which Ben Sass, a Republican senator from Kansas or Nebraska, whichever one that is, um, uh, also reiterated, and a bunch of other people did as well. It's the perfect encapsulation of it. And it was. It was a shit show. Yeah. It was a shit show. So if you uh -huh. were sitting there um, and you're going, my God, this is a shit show. This is I'm embarrassed to be watching this. I'm embarrassed to be an American uh, voter or whatever, or someone who's participated in this process. Who is the person that you want to lose? 
because mm. of your sense of embarrassment. Overwhelmingly, yeah. it's going to be the person who is the president of the United States. Yes, Joe Biden has been there for 47 years instead of 47 months. Yes, he has, as Damon was alluding to before, you know, think of a bad thing <laughs> in American political life in the last uh, half century. There's going to be Biden fingerprints on it. I mean, he used to he used to brag about like the Patriot Act, like he had voted for that bits and pieces he did, of it. Didn't he? No, like oh, I was I voted for that that bit of the Patriot Act in 1998, and this other bit in like 1987. Man, I wrote all of it. Man, shut up, man. Uh, corn pop, but like <laughs> corn pop man. <laughs> corn pop, who existed, as we all know, um, who existed. Yeah, uh, it's real. But like, if, if you want, unlike this, unlike T-Bone, unlike T-Bone, if you want this shit, shout to out Corey stop, Booker. Mm-hmm. You vote against Donald Trump, yeah. or you like, or you just turn off the TV. Um, you don't vote against Joe Biden if your effort is to make that shit stop, and that is the problem of incumbency. Like, um, a lot of these things sounded funnier when we hadn't taken a flyer on the guy. When yeah. it was like, oh my god, can you believe? What wouldn't it be crazy if we actually elected the guy who brought in every person who's accused Bill Clinton of rape? Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember when he did <laughs> that? He did that last yeah. time. That's yeah. the thing that yeah. he did. In addition to calling like Hunter Biden a, a crackhead in this debate, and then everyone sort of shrugs it off. Um, he did this crazy stuff, but back then it was like we've we haven't in any of our lifetime really like went for the crazy. And also, well, there, it's thrilling to, to, to imagine in, going for the crazy. It is not thrilling imagining reelecting I, this guy. I mean, he thinks that um, you know when when uh, the Hunter Biden stuff. I mean, I hate I hate to be horrible, but I think it's a cynical thing. Is that the Hunter Biden stuff always shifts into the Bo Biden stuff very quickly? It goes to the Bo Biden. Yeah, they, of course. They do that very fast. But you know, the whole drug thing was an enormous miscalculation. I don't think it's going to resonate because I don't think any of this stuff does after a week or two. But mm-hmm. to say, you know, like your crackhead son, and Biden had a good response. He's like, "Look, you know, a lot of people have addictions. Uh, you know, I'm proud of him. He got over it, et cetera. And it's like he just seems like a little man at that point. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. incredible that on all of these points where he can actually show some level of humanity because Donald Trump isn't smart enough to believe that showing some measure of humanity, like leavening his personality like that, keep that stuff. He can keep the stuff, you know, being, being a dick, but having that sort of humanity in there would work for him. It doesn't, you know, it's like, he's like the kid in high school who's always trying to be tough and never trying to be sensitive. This the, the the this sensitivity would actually work in a couple of moments in that debate. He's an exceptionally bad debate. And people are like, oh my God, what's Biden? I, mean, I was the same way. He's like, is he gonna pee his pants? Is he gonna do all this stuff? It's like, yeah, but let's remember that Biden has been actually been doing this for 47 years. I mean, Trump has his one memorable line of the 47 months, 47 years. Not a bad line. Okay. But, you know, Biden's not somebody who, if his mental faculties are with him that day um Mm -hmm. who's just going to be somebody you can roll i mean hillary clinton just didn't appear to be somebody i mean she looked like she was getting frustrated you know biden's like when he says shut up and stuff like that Mm -hmm. they not like that was i mean come on does anyone think that wasn't a rehearsed line but of course it was yeah i mean the whole thing was like it it did seem sort of feeble though in the moment like I, i was a little i don't know I don't know why it just came across as a good people, but but I wanna I wanna focus on the two major narratives coming out of these debates. And 
um, despite the the headlines that folks probably saw immediately after suggesting that TV ratings for the first pre- presidential debate were down big. Um, it's worth mentioning that if you saw that headline, those articles were based on numbers that didn't include streaming. Yeah. Um, I did see that in a couple of cases, they suggested that streaming, you know, it represents maybe 10% of like Super Bowl um, viewership in the past. Well, it's not the past. In the era of COVID, streaming numbers are up like 80 to 90%. It is almost certainly the case that most people, I suspect, well, Moynihan, I know where you were. Matt, were you watching on TV or did you stream? I watched C-SPAN, man. Come on, I'm old. Okay, but, but Camille, well, I, Cam- I, streamed, but, I streamed it. Camille, I streamed it like most Americans did. To, but Camille, to your point, <laughs> I was I was yeah. in like a like a like a barbecue restaurant in the middle of North Carolina, and they had it on a TV that was streaming. They had a YouTube mm-hmm. oh, on TV, well, and they had the ABC stream on the on YouTube that was on an HDMI cable TV. So yeah, yeah. I mean, when I when I saw those storylines um, floating around suggesting that, you know, oh, my God, no one is watching. I went and I pulled up like the CNN um, website, the YouTube and looked at the CNN channel on YouTube to see, you know, what did your 2016 debate numbers look like? And in a couple of cases, I've seen like numbers like 13,000 views on like the complete video posted back in September of 2016. You go back and you look at the, the replay on CNN of this debate. It was two million mm-hmm. Two million. The COVID has changed the way <laughs> that we consume content. Um, it is it's got us all stuck at home behind our computers all the time. But that is a side note. The two major narratives which everyone is definitely paying attention to are um, Donald Trump supposedly uh, refusing to denounce white supremacists again, and a, a narrative that actually had become uh, a big deal last week with the president getting another question about a peaceful transition uh, out of office in the event that he loses and the president again sort of refrains from answering. Um, I want to take take both of your temperatures on these two things, and I, I think we probably ought to do them in turn um, and perhaps start with this uh, white supremacist, white nationalist question that was asked by Chris Wallace. Um, it seems to me and no one will be surprised by this because people think I'm a monster anyways. It seems to me that Donald Trump failed to give in our prior conversation up to this point suggests to me that you guys will probably agree. He failed to provide a good answer to any question he got. Mm-hmm. Throughout the night, he was an inarticulate, rambling mess who was interrupting everyone, barely listening to questions. And it did not seem as though he had sort of well-calibrated answers or responses that he knew he needed to get in there one, unlike joe Biden. one exception was the uh his response about lockdowns uh, was mm-hmm. actually uh oh was yeah, actually that's true. and it's not just because i uh more i think agree that's with fair. him but like he was coherent for 90 seconds yeah but but throughout most of the night like the president earned his mantle of most inarticulate president in the history of the united states the response to chris wallace and that entire exchange um, was actually just kind of bizarre mm. where the president's where Chris Wallace, you know, asked this question. Would you ask them to stand down? Chris Wallace says while asking the question. 
And the president responds, I'll say anything. What do you want me to say? <laughs> and Joe Biden and Joe Biden he interjects su- he suggests proud in the midst in the midst of a cacophony of sound. And there's only three people talking throughout this. There's no audience applauding. You still can't make out what's happening. Joe Biden says, say proud boys. And Chris Wallace says, yeah, proud boys. And Donald Trump delivers this response. You have repeatedly we- criticized the, the vice president for not specifically calling out Antifa and other left-wing extremist groups. But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland? Are you prepared to to specifically do it? I I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing. Not from the right so wing. So what are you? What are you, you look, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. You want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and right like me to condemn? White supremacists and right supremacists. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right his wing own, problem. This is, this is a left wing. This is a left wing problem. White supremacist. Antifa is an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it. Not malicious. That's what oh, his really? FBI, his okay. FBI director Gentlemen, said. Well, is this the president dodging an opportunity to denounce white nationalists? Is this the president being inarticulate and dumb, or is it something else? All of the above. It's all of the above. The people who are savaging Trump on this are correct. The people who are slightly defending him on this are also correct in a way. Because, well, because, I mean, look, I think it's I think it's fairly obvious that when he's saying he stand by, uh, Chris Wallace just says stand down. Donald Trump comes out of his mouth like stand up, stand by, whatever. I I think that he screws it up. Right. So mm-hmm. the man is not particularly, you know, a very articulate guy. You can also, mm-hmm. if you want to defend him, say, will you def- de- denounce white supremacists? He says, sure. But then he says, who are we talking about? You just name a name, right? Because he is of the mind in this universe that we live in now that everyone's called a racist and a white supremacist. So be specific about who you're talking about. Because I'm not going to call the guys white supremacists if, you, if you're talking about X or Y, because those are good people, right? This is how Donald Trump, this is my read when I'm watching it. That said, on the other side, um, there's, they're right too. If, if you're a person in this time right now who has your wits about you and is running uh, as an incumbent to become the president again, you would think that you would actually be a little more coached on some of the stuff and expect this question because... It's you give them a little bit and they're going to they're going to just run with it. And, you know, that mm-hmm. it's, it's an easy one, right? They're still arguing. He's still arguing. You know, you mentioned when before Scott Adams, before when we were recording, um, who has been, you know, debating the Charlottesville point. You, you mentioned it yourself, Camille, about what what Donald Trump said that day. So that's going to come back in a, in, a, mm-hmm. in a new way. So here's what you do. Would you denounce white supremacy? response is chris i have done more for black people this is what he said all the time right this is i have he actually said he said it that night he said at least night. chris said it and donald trump agreed yes that yes I, he has done more for black people than perhaps than any president except for maybe, maybe. yeah abraham Lincoln. maybe 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 Mabutu possibly 
<laughs> slightly more than Idi Amin Dada. But he, he's, wait, he do something on that theme, but but yeah. say I of course I do, and then attack the media. Do your media thing. Get your get your base riled up and say this has been a consistent charge that mm-hmm. is false. It is fake news. And again, I'm doing the Donald Trump bit. Not I wouldn't say the fake news. Of course I do. Who doesn't? Mm-hmm. That is outrageous mm-hmm. to say that. But he is saying two things, I think. And this is speculation. And one is like, oh, they call everyone racist. Let's find out who it is. And then Proud Boys, I did, when he came to say, I don't know who they are. I'm sure there's evidence that, they, that he does. I don't know. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. But he, <laughs> look, I, the guy's not a very bright. I don't know. Ch- He's, he's not he but once even, knew who david duke was and then forgot that he knew who of course duke he was. doesn't have a good record on this and that's a very good point because you know he's not somebody who can be relied upon to like on his own his own memory particularly when mem- like remembering like weirdo like racist and or like nationalist groups or whatever but it is of course the same thing that people say this is not a, a new point to make but it's one that should be made is that Donald Trump, of course, will not denounce people who say nice things about him. That is what we get with Vladimir Putin. He's not on the payroll. That's why he says nice things about Kim Jong-un when he's secretly making a miniaturized nuke and just sending like love letters to, to Donald Trump. And they're like, the North Koreans are like, these guys are fucking falling for this? This is ridiculous. You say nice things and the Proud Boys, they're, they're, your, they're, they're your people, right? And so he's not going to be a, a full-throated denunciation. And I don't know if I also somebody should point out that that because words mean things, they mean less now because we're afraid of pointing out when things are wrong. If it's the wrong thing to point out that it's wrong, uh, the Proud Boys are not a white. There are a lot of things and I'm not a fan of any of them, but is it's are there white supremacists? Probably. And it's the type of it's the type of thing that would actually attract people like that but the leader mm-hmm. of this group is himself not white which is a slight complication they had i don't know if you saw this they had a uh um a press conference in utah with utah proud boys and utah black lives matter joint press conference today today uh yes saying no. that we both stand against white supremacists proud boy unequivocal uh, proud boys and he was speaking on behalf of the national organization as well, unequivocally uh, condemn white supremacy. Can you believe that the Proud Boys as next like to a, the Black Lives Matter is great? You know, but like, can you believe the Proud Boys, which is like a bunch of goofballs and fucking Fred Perry shirts, are smarter than Donald Trump than coming out and just saying, "I oppose this stuff." In you, but the answer, but the answer is 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 undoubtedly yes. I mean, th- this is I I really I think it's true that the president has tried his very best to avoid like acknowledging mistakes in public. He does this relentlessly. He doesn't like to it indicate that he might lose an election. And in many instances, like says things that are very sloppy and somewhat dangerous uh, when trying to avoid doing so. But I mean, I really, I just take an Occam's razor approach to all of this. Like the simplest explanation here is the president is just really really bad at this shit like just super bad at it and as a result as a result always manages to muddle his words and get things incredibly wrong um and i think the thing that that most stands out to me is that most people acknowledge this fact they know that he is incredibly stupid 
and why does he keep getting this one wrong but they he gets everything <laughs> wrong i think people have this sort of selective hearing when it comes to trump well, let's, let's, and let's when when the, when they're the, well just let yeah. me let me finish this let me finish this point because when they're listening to him talk and they hear him say ridiculous nonsensical things they'll acknowledge it and say yeah that's totally nonsensical and then he'll say something that that in a, in the context of something that could be um sort of construed as something dastardly and they latch onto it as did you hear what he said did you hear exactly what he said? But why did he say it that way? It's convenient as fuck to be able to do that. And I just think that it's unnecessary. He is so obviously bad at this job that you have a universe of things that you could actually use in order to bludgeon him and demonstrate your point. I think grappling um, on this like one ridiculously stupid thing that he said in the context of the debate, wherein he said, I will say anything, of course I do. Yes, the Proud Boys should. Repeating what Chris Wallace says. I mean, but then he says it was it, it was bad. He says, like, stand by. <laughs> but let we'll see what happens. In in the but unfair spirit, cheapers. Camille, of accusing yeah. you of selective hearing, um, when you talked about go for it. I'm just I'm just precise about these. Things. Are you? Because early, <laughs> because earlier you said that you know his next sentence was like, hey, it's important to point out that Antifa and the left and the Democrats are engaged in a lot of violence. And he, and he didn't do that well either. No, no, no. <laughs> Here's what he said. <laughs> yeah. This is different. What, what he uh-huh. actually said is a little bit different than how you uh-huh. portrayed that. His next sentence after the stand back and stand by is precisely as follows. But, right? But, mm-hmm. what, what does the word mm-hmm. but usually mean? But is like I'm going to like. Uh, but here's what's here's what's imp- here's what's important. Here's what's important. But I'll Let's... tell you what. Somebody's mm-hmm. got to do something about Antifa and the left. Yeah. Right. We've just talked about Proud Boys. We've just yeah. what, what what is the Proud Boys? You know what? Like there's there are plenty of people right now are parsing. Are they white supremacists? Are they Western chauvinists? Is it a is it a male like club? What is it? What it is? It's more than anything else it, at this point. And and I I'm stating this um, whether or not this is true is not. But this is how I think it's true. Um, is they are an anti Antifa kind of LARPing street fighter organization that is converting memes into real time solidarity with one another and trying to imagine that maybe they'll do enough push-ups to be able to succeed in a fight. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But more or less it's anti Antifa. They are the ones who are clashing with Antifa in Manhattan. um, Not even in Portland necessarily because they were, they were, they were were doing Uh, the clashes. uh, You know, there's, there's like 160 people, but though, but Camille, the point here is like, Proud Boys, right? The, this classification, either whether it's Proud Boys or whether it's the uh, the overall group, Patriot Prayer, or as something else. as introduced as the white supremacist that he's being invited to tell to uh, stand down. Um, um, he says, "But I'll tell you what: somebody's got to do something about Antifa." Uh huh. Right. So he's basically saying there, if we're taking him literally for a moment here, like it's kind of understandable that someone's out there. Going after Antifa because, you know, the the cops or the Democrats or whoever are not. I don't think that's taking him li- literally. But I'll tell you what, somebody's yeah. got to do something about Antifa. Filling, you're filling that butt with a great deal of context that isn't actually there, which is which is we've fine. You're allowed to speculate about, about we've this. We've just talked about the Proud Boys and white supremacists. Uh-huh. And as, and as I said a moment ago, the president 
has almost never in his career given a good, straight, forward, articulate response to any question. The fact that he sort of slopped his way to Antifa from there. I don't think it's a slop. Is, asto- is somewhat astonishing to me. I don't me. think it's a slop. I think he's being economical in his words. You you think Trump is economical in his words? He can be. Trump only has about five words <laughs> and he true. deploys them <laughs> in a weird mishmash most of the time. I, I, I think most people have a difficult time actually understanding what the president is saying most of the time and what he's trying to say. But I hear, but and I just point- think it's really important to, to at least acknowledge that that is true. And it's hard for it to also be true right. that he is precisely choosing his moments I mean, I think, to signal in a secret, sort of subtle way, his nasty impulses to bad actors. Well, I mean, think which about is, this, which too, is Camille. The, which is the narrative I hear all the time. I understand that. And I think Moynihan's overall uh, portrayal of this is right, which is that everybody is is at least somewhat right about their interpretation yeah. of these remarks. But keep in mind also that later, and this goes to the second half of your original question, about yes. whether he's going to accept the results of the election. When, when asked about that directly in this debate, he says, well, I, you know, I basically I hope my people go into the polls and to watch really closely because they're going to do the massive <laughs> fraud. Um, so he, yeah. he is telling sure. his people and the people who are who are affiliated with him to go in personally and physically in places where this is happening. Um, as opposed to saying any a number of other things that one could have said. Um, and this has been kind of consistent in his answers. To be clear, he was answering the stuff the exact same way four years ago. I can't believe that people are like acting yeah. freshly surprised by this. This is how he answers the questions, to your point, uh, Camille. That's who he is. But it's also, um, I think, uh, worth pointing out both in terms of that's who he is, that's what he's been saying, and also to your point, Camille, that he talks bad. Um, president shouldn't talk bad. That's a that's actually I'm, I'm bad for a president. Like I think that's that answer He's, to that question bad. It, it is it is. Um, I mean, this is a phrase that's used a lot, and I think without much precision. But uh, and this will be one of those times. But I think that debate made very very clear that he um, is not fit for this job, that he's not fit for the office of the presidency for a variety of reasons. And I don't think the Antifa one. Everyone was paying attention to this one, especially because I, I, I like to kind of go nuts on things that are specific and policy oriented. This one is just confusing. I don't like, I'm trying to figure out we're reading tea leaves. Like he's repeating kind of what Chris Wallace says, but he's just trying to pivot and say, well, yeah, I'll denounce that. But you know, the real stuff you guys aren't paying attention to is, uh, you know, Antifa. And then of course, Joe Biden's like, it's an ideology and a, not a, not a, you know, not a group or whatever he said. Well, saying he was quoting uh, FBI Director Christopher Ray, which he kind of was, but didn't really get the actual context of what Ray was saying. But either way, so what? What is the point, Joe? No one makes any sense in this in this exchange. If it's an ideology and not an actual a group, in the same way that you know Occupy Wall Street didn't have a leader, or Black Lives Matter is a diffuse organization of people who have kind of a common idea, so what? I mean, no one in Portland's like, you know, having their business burnt down and being like, oh, God, thank God they're not an actual organization. And not only that, an actual group. There are actual 501c whatevers that are affiliated with this. They have names like just like the East County, you know, whatever Antifa or or the the, they have names. They have funding. Uh, it's their actual organizations. But it it was a very, a very bad. It was a bad answer all around. And as Trump will never say 
you know, something full-throatedly negative about people who have praised him. It is Joe Biden is in a situation that in a debate state seems quite different of what he's kind of dribbling out to the media in the past couple of weeks, kind of disassociating himself from the more radical elements of um, the left wing of his party and saying, do I look like, you know, like what he said, like, do I look like a socialist, uh, soft on crime kind of guy? During that debate, he missed an opportunity himself to take that Antifa nonsense and just say that this is nothing to do with the Democratic Party, because there is a real fear amongst Democrats that this is driving people away from the party. It hasn't actually turned out to be true, because particularly in the polling in Wisconsin, Biden's numbers have gotten stronger after the Kenosha stop. I thought they would actually. And and on questions of law and order. And on questions of law and order, I thought it would. But, you know, reiterated at that point, don't fall into the Donald Trump trap, which he did. Um, it's very easy trap to fall into, but everyone acquitted themselves so horribly in that exchange. But to the original point of this, it is like the the will you concede the election if you lose? Um, uh-huh. it, it, all the throat clearing and saying, well, it depends. If the ballot, like, no, 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 it's not, no, 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 stop that, stop that, just say yes, say yes. And then if that but, happens, but you then, can't just say yes you ha- you in have this to. context. You have to. No, you really, no, you, you really don't. And and the reason and the reason you don't and and again, an an articulate person with half a brain in their head would be able to say you know because I'd I'd love to be able to say right now that on the evening of the election, once we have a very clear idea of who is in the lead firmly, and I strongly suspect it will be me because I trust the American <laughs> people to make that choice. Um, that that I will, you know, accept the results of the election that evening. Unfortunately, Chris, look at the circumstance that we find ourselves in. Well, that's a different question. My right? my political opponents have decided, but that is the reason for the for the mishmash. Answer. But this is the is thing, the about fundamental yeah. issue. How do you know the reason? You're getting in Donald Trump's head. Well, well, actually, you know what? You're right. I don't want to go too far and assume what the president is thinking, but I will say that it has certainly been a thing that the Trump that the Trump administration, the Trump campaign. Um, at this point, and Republicans in general have sort of beat the drum on the overwhelming number of mail-in ballots in this particular election, like create a very challenging dynamic when it comes to getting being able to get results very quickly. And the expectation that we have that there are going to be fraught court battles fought all over the country, in many instances, in states where we have razor thin electoral margins, and it is going to be very, very, very hard in many instances for people to adjudicate whether or not this was done. And how long are they going to fight in the courts? How quickly does one sort yeah. of say, I've I've conceded the election? I think it's actually a legitimately challenging question to answer. Which is why especially you for a president by saying who is a, like a bunch of a crap numbness. about like West Virginia ballot people <laughs> selling things in a creek. But here, here's and, the again, uh, and no, like, none of None of that surprises no, me. No, but that like, he that's the thing. I mean, you, you you are portraying <laughs> the best possible argument that Donald Trump could make, which is not the argument that Donald Trump did make, and that no, and that I happens agree. all the time. Yeah, but, but the other thing about this is is you're introducing Camille uh, a level of nuance that Donald Trump is incapable of, and it's only mm-hmm. these issues where he becomes nuanced. It's like, well, okay, look, I'm not talking about the election that night. It's if all of these other factors happen. No, no, that's not what he's doing. I mean, keep in mind 
that he laid the, the foundation of this and planted the seeds of this in 2016. You know, that's he true was too. ready that's to fair. say like this, it's, it, you know, it's going to be a fraud. That's fair. You know? Three that's fair. to five million illegal votes. That was, <laughs> right. that, that was yeah. his portrayal. No, that's, that's totally fair. Completely. Totally fair. I mean, totally fair and completely legitimate. I suppose what I'm trying to do <laughs> is actually give him some credit because I've poo-pooed it as well um, for having said, and for people who are associated with him, I, or suppose, I suppose are the people I should actually give some credit to here. But for having said, you know, all these mail-in ballots, this could be a problem. And mm. I, I think that it's largely correct. And I think that it would almost certainly be a much better situation if people were being encouraged to go to the polls, since the expectation appears to be that there is no great danger in people going and voting in the midst of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And to the extent like the mail-in ballots are likely a potential problem. And, you know, all we need at this moment are potential problems because we seem to manage to turn Look, all of those potential to, problems like, into real problems. Go to a, that's probably yeah. better. I mean, if you can go to a Black Lives Matter protest with a mask on and everyone's like, it's fine, they're wearing masks. You can go to the fucking polls with masks. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. Kind of. I mean, just like... Yeah, they're doing the electric slide and then the mask like sort of slips down your face. It's yeah. kind of halfway over yeah. your chin so, by I the time you... making out with that you know, guy with the bernie shirt on and i got covid i was just (laughs) trying i was just trying to further democracy and guess what you guys realize that even as we've been talking tonight that uh twitter is filled with speculation that trump has covid because uh oh because hope hicks hope hicks caught it right trump's like i don't know i took a test we'll find out so everyone's getting super excited but are they are they happy about this how how similar is this um trump Will you concede the election, Trump? Will you say um, that you denounce white supremacists? How similar is this to Trump and Hillary Clinton's? Like, why won't you call it terrorism? Say radical Islam. Oh, it's very. Thing. That's a very good point. It's very similar, and you know, forcing people to say things is the same thing as rolling up on them when they're having their, um, you know, tuna melt at a diner in D.C. and it's like, say Black Lives Matter. Like, wait, what? I'm sorry. I'm just trying to eat a sandwich here. And it's like yeah. this kind of habit. You don't have to imagine you might get punched in the face by the person who's actually asking yeah, well, you that's to say a slightly, radical It's Islam. a slightly more it's a, little yeah, it's a little different. But this this whole thing of like, you're not saying it in this uh, appropriate way. So it doesn't, it means that you don't actually care about it. Because he said the same thing. Um, you won't say law and order mm-hmm. uh, to Joe Biden. Like, over and over yeah. and over again. Over and over. It's like, what? And he's certainly said law and order his entire career he said so. it la- like he said the other yeah. night he was like of course i believe in law and order he's like but i also believe in justice and fairness and it's like you know what that's actually the right answer that was that, a, that is a fair a, answer i wish his career uh, reflected that it, answer well, well, well that's different <laughs> it's just and i i asked the question because i see this like clip of john roberts um who's a, a fox uh, white house correspondent who was apparently getting into it with kaylee mcenany yeah. and doing the same thing again like, why won't you say that you condemn white supremacists? And it's it's obviously a bit of gimmickry. And to to say, you know, well, he said that and he's been consistent on this point. And, you know, there's nothing he doesn't need to say anything. You people are being ridiculous versus I said it and here I'll say it again. Like, isn't the response just going to be, well, you don't really mean it. Yeah. See how long it took you to say it. Well, like yeah. it's it's all a bit of a ridiculous game. It is. It is. Point. But this is the problem with having politicians who aren't bright. If you actually had politicians who were good on their feet and had like you know imagine having ones that 
you know, and I hate to do that thing that Americans often do, but you see it often in, in, in prime minister's questions in, in England who people who are like funny and they're quick on their feet. Because if you're, if you're even halfway quick on your feet, if somebody asks you this question over and over again, you say to yourself, the next time somebody says that, I'm going to go fucking nuts on them. And you can grandstand yourself and make an amazing point, right? You can say, like, look, guys, this is your narrative, isn't it? Like, this is the only thing you have. Donald Trump is the greatest president in the world. He's got the economy, blah, blah. You do your whole fucking spiel and you turn it around on them and brutalize them. And you can do that in a pretty, pretty easy and effective way, particularly because there, there is no... There is no limit to the number of times that Donald Trump can say this, but he needs to say it by your standards, guys. And again, I, if I was the, the press secretary, he has to do it independent of anything else. If he has a next breath where he says, but you guys, you know, with Antifa, blah, 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 you guys don't pay attention to this. You're, you're thinking about this, you know, white supremacist stuff. We're actually on the streets of Portland, Antifa and the radical left and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, whatever he said, mm -hmm. he never compacts it into one thought. And if he was to do it very quickly and compact it into one thought and turn it on the media, because you know what Donald Trump, at the extent of his cleverness on this, because he's not particularly clever, he does, of course, know what works with his base. And what works with his base is I see every time in the past fucking two months where I've tried to go into a space with Donald Trump people. And uh, two nights ago, debate starting, guy comes up to me. And apparently he did the same thing to my cameraman. Comes up to me, puts his phone directly in my face and starts taking pictures. And he's like, I don't, I don't <laughs> trust you. And I was like, you shouldn't. I literally said, you shouldn't. He was like, what? And I was like, you shouldn't. You don't <laughs> fucking know me. Why would you trust me, you fucking idiot? Like, and he's like, I got pictures of you. And I'm like, I know. Go to my fucking website. There's pictures of me. What the fuck do you think these are going to do? I mean, like, I got a picture of the guy. No, I know I'm on TV. It's like, what do you, like, these are, this is the thing that they're so excitable about this media shit. But Donald Trump says, fake news, fake news, turn to the press pen and boo. You ever think of making that a little thicker of an argument, make it a little smarter of an argument, making it sting and punch a little more and saying like, you know what these guys do to me? You know what they do to me? They say, I'm a white supremacist. Look at my, you know, HUD, like, you know, look at Ben Carson. Look at all these people, all these black people love me. That's the Donald Trump line, right? <laughs> it's fucking stupid and long, but go back in full force. Rather than just saying fake news, you guys like fake news. Why is it that these people cannot actually make an argument that might hit and land with somebody who's a little tired of the, you know, Donald Trump's white supremacist, blah, blah, blah. There are people who are tired of that, but they're also not ideological Trump voters. Maybe bring them towards you by making an argument that effectively says the media is after me and they're going to use the most aggressive tactics and they're going to say the worst things about me, and none of it is true. Now, again, this is me speaking from if I were Donald Trump, but not, the, the responses to these, not even the actual, the, you know, people are saying, like, well, you should, well, I said it to me, you should have a better response to that question. It's like, well, on stage, and says, you know, do you denounce them? Well, of course, end of story. I denounce them. I, you know, don't try to walk me into this trap. I denounce them. But after the fact, when it's like, you know, at John Roberts doing that at a press conference, you could have a better answer than that. You could have a better answer that is not only is not it's just not defensive. I mean, it's all defensive. It's take the thing, just go on the offense. And there's a million ways of doing it. And I don't know why they don't take it. 
So we, we've been going for a little while and we should probably punch out soon. I, at some point, and probably we'll probably do it next dispatch, I want to talk about these Comey-Russiagate hearings, which there, there have been some interesting developments there. And I have, I'm thoroughly convinced at this point that the whole of our politics and certainly our national media coverage is, has been captured by and is driven by conspiracy theories on the left and the right. And it's actually kind of insane. And I'm not certain that it can be repaired. And that is something that we probably don't need to talk about now because that's a longer conversation. But it is related to the president had this presser and was asked a question about this peaceful transition of power. Um, and the, the question set up included a reference to the riots that were happening in the streets and, and asked the president, you know, what, what will you do here? You know, there are riots happening in the streets. And I can play the audio of this exchange that took place, although I imagine most people have heard it. I know you two have heard it. Um, But I remember seeing this clip of Chris Hayes describing what was happening that evening and saying, quote, we begin tonight with a chilling moment. The president of the United States threatening violence to stay in power. Um, I found myself a bit stunned by like the apoplectic upset uh, from various parts of the news media, primarily from sections of the media that tend to be incensed about all things Trump. And the assertion that when the president made a reference to getting rid of ballots, what he was suggesting was that they should immediately throw away bags full of ballots that had been completed, which maybe that's what he meant. But I wonder how you guys heard that if the two of you thought to yourselves, yeah, the president is obviously threatening to potentially use violence, violence to stay in power. He is suggesting that he should be made sort of dictator or king for life um, and that the only way to promise peace is by making him president for another four years, whatever the election results. Is that what you guys heard or is this another inelegant sort of Trump Trump moment or is it something more sinister than that? I think I think inelegance the wrong word at some point. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we elected an inelegant per- person on on purpose because we thought that the system was inelegant and it needed to have a mirror put on itself or <laughs> some outsider. Um, You're being very generous in your descriptions of things, Matt Welch. <laughs> None of us cast ballots for Donald Trump. Talking about the we royal didn't week. do that. Royal week. Yeah. Um, okay. I just want to I just want to be sure because not everybody knows uh, they just got here. Yeah. I mean, you know what? I want to be able to break bread with with my country as much as i'm disappointed in it um Mm -hmm. but his answers to things like this um you know his he tells a constant joke on the campaign trail like i don't know i should be be there another eight years 12 years Mm -hmm. and it's like yes the chris hayes of the world are going to sputter in response yes the camille fosters the world are going to say look at them sputtering again yeah the (laughs) molly hemingway is going to say this and it's going to be like a we're going to be like a meta arguments trying to, you know, say, is it in, is it serious? Is it literal? Is it inelegance? Is it this? Is it an authoritarian attempt? Um, at some point there is, I mean, I remember uh, on the, on the gritty streets of suburban Long Beach, um, you know, the, we had, had a, a phrase along the lines of like behind every joke, is it truth or attempted truth? Um, it's not that uh, he, he's probing and seeing like what is funny and useful 
Uh, and then like what can maybe be a thing that you can actually follow up on? I mean, uh, when he was running for president, you know, he said that we should deport the children, the legal immigrant children of uh, United States citizens. That's kind of a big deal. That's four million legal U.S. residents. It was one of about 75,000 reasons why I thought in 2016 that voting for him for president um, is a terrible idea um, because that is like saying out, you know, out front, I'm going to do the Japanese internment times 400. Um, like maybe maybe let's not do that that thing. Um, but he said that. And OK, he didn't do that. You're right. It was an exaggeration. He didn't do that. But what did he do? We don't we won't be accepting any refugees in this country this year. Mm hmm. We I'll, we won't be accepting any refugees in this country this year. That's amazing. That's such an amazing change from where America has been before. So, no, he didn't do the worst case thing that he actually said that he was going to do under cross-examination repeatedly. Um, he didn't uh, end birthright citizenship, partly because he can't. He would love to, I think, if he could. Mm -hmm. Or Stephen Miller mm -hmm. would love to. Um, but he did do these other things. We basically have stopped... Uh, family-sponsored uh, immigration. And that only started this year. Um, a lot of these uh, things come into effect only this year. So um, the process by which roughly six out of seven uh, people have been um, uh, coming to this country as naturalized citizens or legal residents who become citizens, um, that process has been just kind of clipped to nothingness now because of the whatever it's called, the legal charge rule or the public charge rule. You have to you have to sort of show that you're not some poor person without a college degree and without, you know, a possibility to work in order to be able to qualify, even if you are the mom or the spouse or the child of someone who is a naturalized U.S. citizen. He changed that. That's going to be changed for five to 10 years, regardless of who wins the presidency. Mm -hmm. So, no, he didn't do the worst thing. And yes, the people who were apoplectic at the worst things can be seen retrospectively as being ridiculous in the moment. On the other hand, he's the person who is the president of the United States who has incredible amounts of latitude about a lot of things, immigration being chief among them, foreign policy, which he hasn't been as, uh, and he's been less interventionist than many of his predecessors, for which I give him a lot of credit. Um, you mean a Nobel Prize is what you mean. He hasn't engaged in any regime change wars, to use Tulsi Gabbard's phrase. And I think that people who generally don't like him, including me, should point that out if that's a value that they that they hold uh, dear. But like there's there's a permanent hysteria in the media treatment of him. And you see it whenever you turn on anything that's related to media, which is why I don't turn on television for anything except sports. Um, and even then, it better be like, you know, Charles Barkley and Shaq on as opposed to many other people who could be talking about my sports. Um, you know, uh, hell of a game last night, by the way. Jesus Christ. That was pretty great. Wow. Um, wow. But like, yeah, I, I, I only get so much interest in saying, oh, my God, people are being hysterical about Trump. Well, he's the president. He should talk better. He shouldn't make jokes about things that if they were enacted in reality would be bad and or mm -hmm. sometimes terrifying. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be ridiculous, the response to yeah. it. Well, Moynihan, can I put a question? Sure, to you sure. Re directly related yeah. to this. Fine. OK, the president definitely should say things better. I agree completely. I'm just for the sake of argument. Fine. Whatever. Matt that, that was my point. <laughs> what say if, things better. What that's, if we, that's exactly but, what I just meant. But three minutes. But, what, but 
but let's on this media criticism podcast talk about the media mm-hmm. for a little bit and the sort of panicked concern the overheated rhetoric that people are responding to it with is one possible response what if we adopted a posture whereby when we heard the president say and a ridiculous outlandish and often confusing things we responded with a kind of befuddlement and contempt as opposed to pretending it's all crystal clear that he is sort of directly speaking to the darkest factions of the country and by which i don't mean black people with dog whistles <laughs> what 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 say you moynihan one day after we started that network um or we made all the other networks just as the you know all we all got together and said hey let's respond to it this way. let's stop the heavy breathing um one day later maybe take it two days to set up a competitor would pop up and do the exact same thing because that's what people want and that's what people like and it's not just dumb people it's not just like oh you know my my grandfather my my once normal father has been captured by fox news it's like well my once normal friends have been captured by other networks too and watching those in the past couple days has been really astonishing to see i watched nicole wallace who um is just a disgrace in almost every way i mean thank you for giving us sarah palin and now pretending um that you're uh a quote-unquote republican i mean she's not a republican and she had on, um, uh, as somebody who wrote a book about James Baker, this is two days ago, you can find this clip. And every time, this was so amazing to me, and this is something I don't think anyone would ever notice or tweet about or talk about, but I, for some, because I'm, I'm interested in James Baker, and like, as Matt and I have talked about quite a bit, very interested in, you know, the end of the Cold War around that time. So what happens? Oh, you get the, <laughs> politics of diplomacy of James Baker. This woman comes and and Nicole Wallace talks about James Baker in in a sort of broadly laudatory way. But like twice in a very short segment, she throat clears and says, hey, this I know he's associated with some things that are bad. And I know that like you guys like who listen to watch. I know he's a Republican. But just on this narrow point, like, honestly, you have to find the segment. And this narrow point, like he was good. She kept on. It was like two times she said, wanted to make sure that everyone knew because she knows her, her viewers and her constituents that um, I don't send me mails like he's bad, too. He did some bad things. But we're going to talk about the good stuff now. And it's like, what, wait, what are you doing? And I realized at that it's point. James- Baker? James Baker. Would we and be I doing re- that for Warren Christopher, who was an absolute <laughs> sad sack of a yeah, diplomat? Does anyone remember Warren Christopher? Just me. Um, just you. Uh, Bill Clinton doesn't even remember Warren Christopher. <laughs> um, but this, I noticed like, on this channel, it's like, you know, we have gotten into this thing where we talk about Fox, 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 Fox. Yes, 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 yes. But I have to say, in that moment when I was flipping between, like, Fox had some people on that were, like, arguing with each other. And we've we're so far down this road that we say and, and the people on these shows have the unmitigated gall to look straight into the camera and say, you know, we are too polarized. This is the polarization has gotten out of control. It's like, dude, quit your fucking job. That's the first thing that would help towards polarization. Because every moment on when I'm watching these people. And as I said before, everyone's trying to outdo each other in hyperbole of like, this is, and, 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 to, and, and to go back to what Matt was saying, I agree, the talking thing is, is important. 
the president should not talk in this boorish manner. And I've actually shifted on this a little bit because I, you know, beginning of his presidency was like, so what? You know, who cares? I mean, it's like this fake decorum stuff. And then I've realized more and more that it matters on about, you know, a hundred different levels. It, you know, not least because if you're flying off the cuff all the time, then it becomes policy because they're like, oh shit, we'll make that policy. 2015, they actually made a policy out of an off the cuff Donald Trump comment, which is one of the most sinister things he said. 15? Uh, 2015. Uh, when he said uh, we have to ban Muslims from coming. Oh, right. Uh, they event afterwards. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, and after this became policy. Like that is a repugnant thing to say. Number one. Number two, notice that from 2016 to 2020, there really hasn't been a lot of Muslim talk from the White House. You know, there hasn't been a lot of like, you know, civilizational jihad, you know, clash of civilization, Samuel Hunting stuff. that kind of disappeared. But at the beginning, Trump is testing how it how it plays. And presidents shouldn't talk like that, shouldn't say 1.6 billion people. Let's keep them all out of the country until we, quote, see what's going on. And then you say, wait, uh, Mr. President, are we t- uh, is this just a Sunni or a Shia thing? Are Sufis involved? And he's like, I don't know Sufi. Who's Sufi? Who's talking about Sufi? Like, these people are idiots. And they're making these grand statements, these gross statements become policy and that he tries to enact when he gets into office in in January 2017. So on that level, like I I, I, the the way that this man talks is an embarrassment. The way he comports himself in in a debate is an embarrassment. And I don't want him to win the presidency because I'm tired of this embarrassment. And, you know, the way the media reacts to him is like. Look, they're playing, they're playing each other. They know exactly what they're doing. They're playing each other's roles. Jeff Zucker is going to say, oh, you know, Donald Trump, this is a disgusting abdication of, of, of moral responsibility. I'm sorry. Didn't you just have a thing that was always like in, in, in 20 minutes, Donald Trump's going to be live from fucking Poughkeepsie. And, he'll, and they'll, we're going to play that for eight hours. Morning Here's, Joe. Every fucking day he's on. I, and all I of a sudden to, they forget about that. I want to vigorously agree with you and then agree with what Camille said when he was arguing with me, which is that one of the responses that came out of the debate, a series of people, John Meacham, talking about MSNBC, who's a presidential historian or popular historian of some sort. Uh, and uh, Oh, you tweeted it, about this, didn't you? And at least at least one other person who has some kind of pedigree whose name uh, is escaping me right now um, basically asserted that Trump's uh, Proud Boys, you know, garbled moment, whatever one might think of it, and I'm maybe less charitable than Camille, uh, and Camille's not charitable, um, uh, <laughs> is the, like, worst moment of the presidency. I, f- I forget what he said. Maybe since Andrew Jackson? I think something? he went back to the 1800s, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Didn't you so- point on Twitter <laughs> the, the internment of the Japanese? Was that you? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, like, uh, uh, all of these people in, or many of these people, should be nicer, um, in, like, chattering class positions, and we are in them. We're chattering right now. Yeah. We're, we're yeah. in class. Um, uh, have this, uh, but this is also true broadly in political journalism. It's true in the front page of the New York times today, um, talking about various things. They would rather quote Donald Trump's tweets than actually examine the real world policy implications of things on human beings. Yes. That's 120,000 people of Japanese extraction, more than half of whom were U S citizens were, ripped up out of where they live their their properties were possessed and they were sent 
to. I mean, it's kind of physically beautiful uh, place, but it's Manzanar. not a really nice place. You, you want to buy a house in Manzanar? Uh, no, there are not <laughs> many Airbnb, houses there. Airbnb in Manzanar? Uh, but, like, it was messed up. And uh, and uh, almost every single newspaper, with the exception of the Orange County Register, libertarian paper, in Southern California, supported this uh, and supported other things like that. But those real-world implications yeah. are what matters. The I think even before Trump was, uh, was sworn in office, I wrote a column for the L.A. Times, like, how do you work yourself through in a productive way the crazy shit that this guy says? And I suggested like going backwards from like, okay, um, does he have any power here? <laughs> and it, that can affect lives. So like he'll say, I think people should go to jail for at least one year for burning a flag. I think was the was the uh, the thing. And he's repeated that you know recently as well. Turns out he doesn't have that power. Does adjudicated the Supreme Court in 1988. He's screwed. Can't do anything. So you can say that's dumb. I don't like the way that you're influencing the culture. You're spreading a bad notion. Um, it's against the culture of free speech. But I'm going to prioritize the things that actually might threaten to touch people's lives. And I and I and I think that's what people and journalists in particular should do. And they don't. There was a big piece in The New York Times uh, two days ago. Um, it was a terrible, terrible, terrible piece of journalism on the front page, it was about something that should be ostensibly of interest, that the White House was pressuring the Centers for Disease Control to kind of bend their messaging on um, coronavirus and school reopenings. OK, you know, that's that's a classic Washington story, you know, bureaucratic infighting, White House pressure, what information is going out in the public? OK. Um, and uh, and within it, they, they were trying to to like scare people uh, of saying like in the White House kept telling the CDC that they really should have, you know, uh, breakout information about how it affects people uh, from zero to 18 as opposed to just zero to 25. Like, can you believe it? And it's like, that sounds fine. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> that's what the White House should be doing to try to harmonize the information but the and, and to buttress their points, to dress up the awfulness of Trump here did they like quote from the people in those in those uh, meetings? Did they talk about? No, they quoted from his worst possible tweets. And it's like, no, um, there's an actual science involved. The science and, and the and there's consumers of that information, me included, who actually want to know that data broken down piece by piece. And um, and there are more relevant things to talk about in the present suites. The reason why I haven't watched a bit of cable news, I think, in almost six months. Um, it's because every time I would turn on even for three minutes, um, uh, MSNBC in particular, because that's what was uh, the default upstairs, it was, can you believe he said that thing? It's like, I want to talk about he did that thing or he talked about doing that thing in a concrete way. And it wasn't that because that's harder. That's harder to actual talk, actually talk about the impact of policies to measure whether people's good intentions mattered a goddamn shit when when translated into policy maybe when it was somebody who wasn't as horrible horrible as uh, donald trump no it's like bad tweet can you believe it we're all shaking our damn heads we all agree with each other who can outperform one another in hating him that's not it well i know we're gonna we're gonna punch out now and we should um i am seeing a story circulating now oh, no. currently melania melania trump is trending and um, you guys will see the clip later. There's this audio clip of Melania talking to her former aide who has written a tell-all book and apparently oh. was, was surreptitiously recording her. 
Um, and in the audio, Melania Trump uses phrases like, give me a fucking break and liberal media. And also, who gives a fuck about Christmas stuff and decorations? But I have to do it, right? Um, she speaks for all of us. This is... <laughs> This this is being <laughs> I, I love her. represented. <laughs> this is this is being represented in a pretty nefarious way um, on CNN and in various other places. The, the the audio was apparently first played on CNN. Um, it's very important audio. Very important. It's who, it's who cares actually a fuck about Christmas. <laughs> but 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 that's no actually Christmas. What are you doing? but the thing is the thing is <laughs> that she's about but you guys haven't heard the audio yet so what she, what she actually says mm. is she's talking about the the christmas decorations and saying that she's doing this stuff that she hates and goes on to say that and then someone comes along and asks me a question about like children's being separated from their families and i'm like give me a fucking break and that is what people are latching on to. Mind you, she goes on to say in like the very, the very next thing that she says is like, how come you people didn't have anything to say about Obama? Like these are Obama policies. And I tried. I tried to reunite the families, but I can't. Like the law has to be allowed to work. I don't know. It just strikes me as like another totally garbage contrived controversy and it's going to work its way through the news you cycle love Melania and in too. two he days so and in much. two days no one will care yeah. and look i'm not i'm not casting a ballot the, the for cam- donald the trump the camera's going up i won't yeah. up i won't <laughs> i won't weep is, is like his forehead now i won't weep if donald trump loses at all um but this is another garbage story and yeah i kind of like melania I mean, she knows like 52 languages. I, I like She's a supermodel. And I mean, come on. I, la- come I on. want Camille to run president. <laughs> Tomorrow. She's just, she's just real. Camille, you know? She's just a real person. I run with him. We don't do any flowers or the kids. And she's kind of bad. The kids are it's really like, It's not good. <laughs> and she doesn't like she it. Does, it's clear she doesn't. Like she's weeping on the tape. I she's weeping. Oh my right. god! We got to shut this All down. Right, shut this down. It's too late. Bye. It's damn hot. Bye. And um, yeah. Right. Bye. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.